0: episode 36 of the tactical breakdown podcast this is the audio we pulled from the instructors roundtable we held in march on firearms training here you go suspects, all, all welcome to, to the, the tactical, tactical breakdown. breakdown
1: a podcast for law enforcement military and emergency response
0: professionals Stand by. where we help you bridge the gap and talk training tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the
1: world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin.
0: Hey there, welcome to Tactical Breakdown. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. If this is your first time, thank you for being here. You've joined us on a very special episode. And if you're a returning listener, always thank you so much for your love and support. This is a special episode because we've pulled the audio from round three of our instructors roundtable that took place in March, and it is on firearms training. So we have four of the top subject matter experts in the world on firearms training. They are amazing. We had a great conversation, and uh, I can't wait to get this to you. Now, just a real quickly before we jump into this IRT, a reminder that on the last Thursday of each and every month, we run our IRT live on YouTube and on Facebook. You can check that out at the breakdown.ca forward slash I R T coming up this month. So this month being April 2020, we are doing a roundtable on active threat response. We have an amazing lineup of instructors, including Tim Kennedy, Dr. Mike Simpson, Brian Murphy and Robert Carlson. Make sure to mark this one in your calendars, April 30th at 6 p.m. Central Time. That's going to be 4 p.m. if you're on the West Coast. Really looking forward to this IRT, so make sure to lock it in on your calendars and join us for the live conversation. You can ask questions of the instructors, and as always, we're going to be doing some giveaways to those people that are attending and engaging with us on the panel. All right, so as I said before, this is the audio we pulled from the Instructors Roundtable on Firearms Training. The intro is going to be coming up right after this, so that'll introduce your instructors. Just a quick heads up, you're going to notice the audio is a little bit wonky for the first couple minutes. We had a few technical difficulties when I put this together live, Um, so if you could make it through the first couple minutes for the introduction, the rest of the audio should be fine for you, Uh, but just a heads up in case you were wondering on that. So let's jump right into it. Here we go. Hey there, welcome to the Instructor's Roundtable. I am your host, Adam Kanakin. I'm also the creator of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. This is round three on firearms training in law enforcement. But before we jump into this panel discussion, I wanna first acknowledge the first responders and medical staff who are out there battling the COVID-19 pandemic around the world. We're in unprecedented times, and our first responders are being called upon continuously to help their communities knowing full well that they're putting themselves in harm's way. During this time, the importance of mental health cannot be understated. There's no reprieve from stress of work because when you get home, you're isolated. You're cut off from everybody else. You're confined to your home without the benefit of social support from your friends and your fellow officers. There's gonna be no beers after work. There's gonna be no debriefs. There's gonna be no way to decompress. And that's gonna take a toll. The threat to your health is going to remain constant. The health of yourself, the health of your family. And there's going to also be financial constraints due to the economic shutdown, which is also very stressful. And I ask all of you, look out for your buddy. Look out for your fellow officers. We don't know what the outcome of this COVID-19 pandemic is going to be sociologically, financially, economically. So please look out for one another. Watch their six and know that they have yours. We're going to get through this and be stronger for it. Now. As I said, this is the third iteration of the instructors' roundtable. Today's topic is firearms training, and I'm excited to have compiled a panel of experts who are always ready to jump right into the discussion and talk training. Now, initially, we had two experts, Bruce Siddle and Luann Hamblin, who were slated to be part of this IRT. However, due to their rapidly evolving situation that we find ourselves in, they were unable to make it today. So in their place, I found two equally qualified and experienced experts who I am honored to have be part of the Tactical Breakdown family. Listen, I'm going to jump right into it. Here is your panel for round three. All right, the first instructor I'm going to introduce to you today is Paolo Grandis. Paolo comes to us from Antova, Italy, and has shot competitively and teaches his techniques worldwide. Right now, he's strapped in North America due to the COVID-19 outbreak, but I'm so honored to have him on the show. He instructed for the last four ILFE annual training conferences in the United States and has trained numerous military and law enforcement groups, including the U.S. Marshals, the South Baldwin Special Response Team, the Italian Army, Serbian Army, the Presidential Security Division, and Commandos Regiment in the Democratic Republic of Sri Lanka, among many others. He is a product development consultant and instructor for DTG Defense Technology Group specializing in Kalashnikov and HS product weapons. Paulo, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. All right, next up on the hit list, Todd Fletcher. Now, if you don't know Todd, he has over 25 years of law enforcement experience as a patrol officer, a criminal detective, patrol sergeant, and training sergeant. Todd has been a law enforcement instructor for over 23 years and is a field training officer, empty hand control tactics, taser, baton, pepper spray, use of force, and firearms instructor. He's an ILFE staff instructor for the Master Instructor Development Program and has provided firearms training, integrated use of force training, and training consulting services to law enforcement agencies, private security companies, and armed citizens. He has testified as an expert witness in cases involving police training and the use of force. Additionally, he has trained officers, private security, military personnel, and armed citizens around the world. Todd brother, thank you so much for being here. All right, I'm so excited to introduce the next two instructors, both of which picked up that call last minute, dropped everything that they were doing to jump on and do this call with us. So thank you guys so much for doing that. First on that list is Brandon Wright. Brandon's a former law enforcement officer and SWAT officer who's currently the regional manager for Smith & Wesson on the East Coast. He has been a competitive shooter since 2012 with Team Smith & Wesson and during that time has achieved Grandmaster in USPSA, distinguished master in idpa and is a three-time idpa national champion along with firearms he teaches swat operations tactical considerations fighting from a vehicle defensive driving armored vehicle ops off-road ops and improvised road ops so brandon thank you so much for taking the time with us today all right last up on our list and by no means least is joseph ferrera you may know him as little joe but he has over 43 years of experience in law enforcement and corrections. He has been training officers for over 32 years and is a staff instructor at a police academy in Oakland County, Michigan. He is presented at ILETA, ASLET, ILFE, ALETC, and various local and national conferences in the United States and Canada. He is a human factor science staff instructor and presents instructor training in threat pattern recognition and other science-based use of force programs in addition to having been trained by the late Colonel Rex Applegate in his point shooting system. He has been a subject matter expert in law enforcement and corrections training and has given expert testimony in state and federal courts on the use of force. Joe, it's an honor to have you here, brother. All right, I'm so excited for this lineup. I'm sure you're ready to jump right into it. Before we do, real quickly, I just want to remind everyone that there is going to be a roundtable happening every month, the last Thursday of every month at 6 p.m. Central Time. Next month the topic is going to shift to active threat response and that panel is going to be released in early April. Make sure you don't miss it. Hit the subscribe button and the little bell icon on YouTube if it's just if you're on YouTube it's just below the video and you're notified when a new episode comes out or we start a new live stream. Additionally, if you haven't already checked out the Tactical Breakdown podcast, I would definitely encourage you to do that as well. You can go straight to the breakdown.ca Or type in tactical breakdown into the search bar of any podcast player to find it. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You'll get all of the episodes, stay up to date with the world of law enforcement training. All right, I hope you're ready for this. Let's jump into it. Here we go. All right, welcome to the instructors roundtable, everyone. Um, again, technical hiccups. Everybody, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you. It's great.
0: Happy to be here. It's an honor. So, real thank quick, you. everybody, any of <laughs> anybody watching this is going to be is going to be pretty adept and notice that we actually don't have Brandon on, but we do have another instructor joining us. Uh, with paulo there and obviously alexandra what i'm going to do instead of me completely trying to go through and and give your expertise can you just give everybody just a real quick snippet of your background and uh, and why you're so excited to to jump on the call with us today
2: oh thanks adam i'm really excited to be here Um, i've been in law enforcement for about 22 years i currently am a police sergeant in the northwest suburbs of chicago and uh, work as a firearms instructor and crisis intervention instructor and uh, do a whole bunch of different things in the instruction realm. Um, I have a private business as well since uh, it's 10 years now. So 2009, Phoenix Firearms Training. And again, happy to be here. Um, I'm also on the board of ILFE, the International Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And you're a little laggy on there, so I don't know if maybe we got to sort out your, your internet a bit, but um, before we really jump into everything, and I kind of sent everybody a quick topics uh, list of everybody who had been sending me questions and comments for this roundtable on firearms training. Now we have a lot of stuff going on with the COVID nineteen, and it's it's different everywhere else in the world. I mean, up here in Canada, we just our prime minister this morning just announced that they're uh, they're going to be setting a mandatory quarantine for anybody coming into the country, and if you don't, you could be arrested. There's so there's a lot of different things happen, in a lot of different places in the world. So one thing I want to start off with something fun and because you're all firearms experts and what I want to do is find out if we do if this t- deteriorates completely and we're all stuck um, and you get one system to run, you get one complete system. That's it. What are you going to pick and why? So uh, Todd, why don't we start with you? Uh, Something that we already own. Yes, something that you already own. I'd, I'd
1: probably go with my AR-10, uh, AR platform, and a 308. I think it's uh, a very diverse and very flexible uh, platform. It's accurate, runs just like uh, everybody's AR-15s, and still use it to hunt deer. You could use it to hunt feral hogs here in Texas. Uh, I think it's a uh, uh, compact, lightweight enough to be uh,
0: uh, maneuverable. That's probably what I go with. I love it. I love it. Joe, what What about you, man? What are you, what are you taking with you? Well, uh, if I'm
3: only given one choice, it'll be a handgun, probably be my, uh, my issued Glock 17. Uh, if you're giving me a long gun too, then as odd as it might sound to a lot of the viewers right now, I'd go with my mini 14. I've got a Can't lot go of, cool wrong with mini. Model. I, I've had it, uh, oh God, since the early nineties, uh, I was able to purchase it from my agency when I retired and uh, I, it's the gun I know the best. So, my Mini-14 and my, my Glock 17
0: Awesome. And then you two, what each get a pick. So which, which one are you two going to take?
2: Um, I'll, I'll stick with what I know, my AR or my
0: 1911.
4: All right. For me, my Glaxo and my Glock.
0: All right. Well, I'm nowhere near uh, as adept at shooting as any of you, but I'm going to, just from what I've been experienced with, I'm going to take uh, my 1911 high-power Browning. Um, that's what we shot with Canadian Forces and that thing lasts uh, forever, you can't wreck that thing, so um, I'm going to take that with me, but, alright, so that's cool and um, if you're uh, if you're listening to this and you can tune into the comments and you can put your uh, your suggestion as to what you'd put in there uh, and what you'd take with you and additionally, if you're watching this, uh, whether it's recorded or live um, thank you for being here and for those of you who are here live um, later on in the show, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to do a little bit of a giveaway for you guys um, we actually got all our IRT shirts in and we got some new patches in and they actually are pretty slick. They were done by our friend's patch panel up here in Canada. So um, I'm going to give away some shirts and some patches to uh, the people that are listening to this live. So make sure you stick around for that. Now let's uh, let's jump into some conversation. Like I said, I had sent out a, a topics list to everybody. And the one topic that came up the most, bar none, was qualifications and why they are just ineffective and my thing is my biggest thing is with the with the four of you that are here I'd like to get each of your thoughts on the difference between maybe qualification uh, certification and dynamic training and what is the current issue and why haven't we moved away from the way we've been doing qualifications for the last 50 years um you know what Joe maybe I want to start with you and, and we we'll, I'll let you kick it off Okay, well,
3: uh, again, representing PPCT management systems and the human factors uh, human factors science people, uh, we, we traditionally have done law enforcement firearms qualifications from anywhere from about, uh, let's say, 15 feet out to 25, 30 yards. And yet statistically we know that a majority of law enforcement shootings are close quarter, like three to 12 feet, spontaneous, sudden and unexpected encounters. And we don't spend a lot of time teaching both the threat recognition that would cue us up that something's going wrong, or the response, the the rapid, uh, uh, the ability to acquire the threat itself rapidly get out of the way in a very simple manner and engage the threat without us losing our lives.
0: Awesome. Todd, what are your, what are your thoughts on the way we're doing qualifications right now?
1: Well, I think that it starts with making sure that everybody's on the same page when it comes to the verbiage. A lot of people say qualification and to them, that means training. And, but to me, qualification is a test. It's a test of minimum standards and it's, They're not realistic. Uh, A lot of people get wrapped around the axle about what their qualification is. Should we change the qualification? Should we make it harder? And quite frankly, I don't care about qualification. Again, it's a test of minimum standard. If you weren't able to qualify, you wouldn't have graduated from the basic academy to begin with. You wouldn't be out on the street uh, because your admin would be looking at the qualifications and your repeated failure of it, and they wouldn't put you out there because now you're a liability. But when it comes to to qualifying, we we get all worried about the qualification scores. We get all worried about what we're going to do. But the bottom line is, it, the less time that we spend qualifying, the the less time, the less ammo, the uh, you know, the less resources that we have to dedicate to qualification, the more time we can actually dedicate to training and training is where you get to push people to find out what their failures are. What, what are they good at? What do they need to work on? What is their uh, speed limit? What is their uh, the point in time where they start to fail because they're trying to go too fast? All of these kinds of things. That's what's really important. Training, not qualifying, that minimum test of minimum standards. Nobody cares. Uh, most plaintiff's attorneys don't care about qualification either. They care about your training records. They care about your personnel records, but they don't care about qualification scores. They know hey, in order to graduate from your basic academy, you're going to have to qualify anyway. A lot of states have qualification courses of fire that they're that mandated to do. Others like Oregon, they say that's completely up to, to your agency. Uh, so I think that that time, that money, that ammo, is much better spent actually training and training to, uh, you know, perform to a much harder, higher standard than it is to uh, spend that time on qualification.
0: Yeah, right on. And uh, <laughs> and I'll let you two, you can each go individually. Like, what are your thoughts? And, and Paula, i would be really interesting to find out what it's like for you uh, in Italy and what it's oh. like in the EU. Um, and then, uh, Alexandra, from your experience
4: as well. Uh, we have a different standard in Italy we don't have the same uh, qualification type of quali- qualification you have so in this case I cannot take my experience here by from from Italy we work differently uh, different law and this is something make us in a mm, different position even with a bad guy so I cannot really speak about mm, qualification in Italy. It's something completely different.
2: I, I think, I think his quali- any qualification that they're doing there is a little more meaningful than what we tend to do in the States. What we tend to do is a checkbox kind of a proving to administrators that you can handle your firearm without shooting yourself or somebody else. It's sort of the purpose of qualification. I don't know if we're ever going to get away with it because um, the trainer's mindset is always going to be uh, different than your administrator's mindset. We need to have some way to, to quantify to them that, hey, these people can go out and carry these firearms. But as, as Todd and um, Joe were saying, it, it, it makes more sense to <laughs> spend that money and spend that time in the training that makes a difference to keeping our people alive and keeping our people doing what, what they need to learn how to do to survive encounters on the street. Um, So that should really be a minimal thing that we're focusing on. And it's, it's um, almost an afterthought in training as far as, okay, we walk through this thing that we have to do for the state or for whoever says we have to do it. And then we go and pay attention to the things that are truly important.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting And, and hearing all you guys give your explanations of it. It seems to me like, why aren't we, is there, is it time to change the way we're doing qualifications? If we know that it's, it's really not that effective. It's really not helping us out. It's kind of a waste of time. It's waste of, of training dollars. Is there, is there a reason to still have it set out the way that it is? And is there, is there, is it the time to change it? Like, what do you guys think? Well, I
1: think it, a lot of it has to do with where you're from. There are some States that require that, that you shoot this target uh, this many times a year. It's written into, uh, statute or some administrative rule, uh, then there are states where it's completely up to the agency. And then we've got to overcome the hurdle of changing our stance on qualification because qualification then, to a lot of us uh, or a lot of agencies and a lot of administrators is we qualify because that's the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. it even though it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. It's a waste of ammo. We could actually use that time. We could use that ammo more effectively to actually train on the live fire range, uh, as opposed to some test of minimum standards. But hey, you got a lot of leaders out there that say, I've always had to do it. It's the way it's always been done. I don't want to be the one that, that, uh, makes that call.
2: There, there almost seems to be a fear in getting away from it. Again, that whole concept of this is the way we've done things for so long that why should we change it? Or maybe we haven't come up with good enough reasons to push it yet. I don't know. Maybe that's something we can do as instructors is keep fighting for, for that.
0: It seems to me like it just, why with the qualifications, the way they are, it's should there be a change? I mean, we all know it's because of liability, right? Mm-hmm. The, everything, the, the quals are there to, to kind of take care of that liability issue. But could there be an argument made that the way that certain agencies are doing it is actually increasing the liability rather than decreasing the liability? Joe, what do you think?
3: Me personally, I believe that what every agency should do is a task, they should start with a task analysis. Look at what your people do. One of the things when when we use the term qualification, uh, one of the things we look at is that you have to shoot this way at this position, uh, these many rounds, as we were saying, at this specific target. And I think what each agency needs to do is a task analysis. In other words, if, if you're running a uniformed police department, who's out there doing general police service every day, you're making traffic stops, you're responding to thieves stealing at the local convenience store, you're responding to domestic violence runs, Uh, a a typical uniformed police department. If you do a task analysis of, of your agency, look at what agencies, either your agency or similar agencies, get involved in when it comes to use of force and specifically for tonight's conversation for firearms engagements. Look at what needs to be done. Look at What is happening to the officers? How are they being engaged in firefights? What's happening? And that versus an agency, let's say, like a conservation officer, who might find themselves in different circumstances, walking into a camp full of drunk deer hunters with high-powered rifles. They might not have the same type of firearms encounter that a uniformed police officer making traffic stops and responding to, to domestics would have. So, therefore what we need to do, what every agency needs to do is sit back and say, who are we? Are we primarily a plainclothes operation that goes up and arrests people on warrants or investigates things? And, you know, how are are our firearms encounters happening? Once an agency does a task analysis, once they look at how firearms are being used in the line of duty, then they can better suit the needs of their personnel by developing firearms training around their needs and around the most likely encounters they're going to have when it comes to firearms.
0: That definitely makes a lot of sense. Does anybody else have anything to, to add to that? No, no? Joe, you're too good at answering questions. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um... <laughs> I'm sorry.
3: But it, you know, what we tend to do in this country, and I'm sure possibly in Italy, and, and I'm sure Canada also, is that there's some governing body that says, this is what a law enforcement officer is, and uh, this is how you're gonna train them. And for example, in the state of Michigan, we have the Department of Environmental Quality. They, They now have a new title, forgive me, they just changed it recently and I don't know their name. But one of the people that I know that works there says that a lot of their firearms training is done in full hazmat gear with respirators on, because a lot of times they're walking into a toxic environment and dealing with individuals in full hazmat gear with a, with an air pack on, you know, they all sound like Darth Vader when they talk to each other. But my point is them, them using a standard qualification that a street cop in Michigan would use doesn't make any sense because it doesn't help them. That's not their task.
1: Uh, it's kind of like a uh, uh, plainclothes detectives showing up on the range wearing uh, body armor that they haven't worn for four or five years and, and a duty yeah. belt that they never ever wear. Yeah. And now all of a sudden they're going to take this test of minimum standards using gear that they never ever use. That that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, you know, and, it, and, and to, to Joe's point, the, when he talks about the job task analysis, you know, we, we start looking at the reality of gunfights, what's actually going on out on the street. And all of a sudden, in our test of minimum standards, our qualifications, uh, we're we're putting officers in situations that uh, they're extremely unlikely to, to ever encounter in a, in a gunfight out on the street, and we're calling it a, a qualification. If you can do A, then you can carry this gun out on the street, and, you know, in uniform patrol or or in in your position as a law enforcement officer. And instead, we're we're anchoring. We're anchoring guys on in on the range instead of having them uh, engage in deliberate, uh, you know, very quick movement to get off the line to on moving targets, those kinds of things. And the whole reason we aren't doing that type of a qualification is because it makes it hard on instructors. If you've got guys running all over the place with moving targets for, you know, at least a moving target for every officer on the range then it makes it harder and a lot longer to do a qualification. So we're still stuck doing what we've always done, which is a, basically a, a range arena. It's a range dance without purpose, without any training value until we get that done. And then we can train. Amen.
2: I'm also going to put something out there that might be a little controversial, too. And while we have some departments that are training up to better standards, like what Todd's talking about with, with um, you know doing more movement and having more realistic qualifications, um, you also have some departments who have gone backwards on their qualifications because what happens if our guys fail it? So instead of spending the money, the time and um, the resources that they need to better train because that that's, it's all capital outlay, um, they're kind of making the analysis based on uh, maybe not the best not the best um, decision points. So I think we have to watch out for some of those things, too. And, again, it's about getting everybody up to a standard where they can actually uh, perform the way that they need to on the street.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like Jason in Lefia says, you know, qualifications should be the easiest thing that you ever do on the range. It's a testament to the standards. Uh, so. so mm-hmm. You know, get them out there. It should be the easiest thing. There's no warm up. Just get them out there, get it done, get it over with, and now train. Yeah, actually push their limits. Figure out where we need to, what we need to do in order to to develop skill, in order to make them better. Uh, not just at punching holes in paper, but actual, actually better at being gunfighters. Well, you know
0: that brings up a really interesting topic when i was thinking about putting this this whole thing together i want to find a way to to get all of your opinions on how do we take somebody who's never touched a firearm before and they get into law enforcement could be law enforcement could be corrections military security whatever they get into the role where now they're given a firearm and it's going to be part of their equipment when they're on duty we have to take them and we have to start them from somewhere they, they have to start somewhere where should that point be? And then how do you effectively train them from that point to winning a gunfight down the road when, when it actually matters?
4: Personally? <clears throat> Personally? Yeah. Uh, can sound strange but you, you need to uh, inoculate passion to people. <laughs> so when someone chooses a job like police officer or whatever and you need the gun... And he need a gun, you need to enjoy. Not you know, sorry, my English not perfect, but you need to, to like what you do. So every, every time you go to train yourself, you need to go for with passion and with enthusiasm. You cannot take the training like something force or you're obliged to do. Or for me, because practice makes you perfect, if you shot thousand bullets per day even not a super person can hit the target at the end of the training but instead of throw away money on uh again on thousand bullet, find a right instructor, right instructor or different instructor can create a different exercise they take you out of your comfort zone and uh, make the, uh, the 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 training. I want to use this word. I know is not correct, but make your training funny or fun or have fun. So at the end of the training, you're you're tired because you move your body, but you learn something only if you're calm, and if you're not stressed. This is why I'm, for example, I'm against some super tactical training like push up, pull up. If you need to learn something. Need to to be calm and relax. I don't know if you if it makes sense, but this is my idea. Maybe Alexandra can help because she knows my way of thinking and her English better than mine.
2: So, but bringing and bringing the passion into the instruction and. Um Getting to the point where where we can recognize our students who are engaged and who aren't engaged, and it starts with having an instructor who's willing to, to bring everything they have to the training, um, and and be as much of a student as they are an instructor in a lot of ways. So they're learning from their students, and they're able to they're able to um, react and to um, appropriately uh, inspire them to to want to do better and. Put past maybe their fear of firearms or bad training we've had in the past or um, any number of things that our students come to us with um, and, and that's kind of the foundation that we want to work from before we get into the more advanced techniques because everybody has to, we have to get people to the point where um, like Todd was just talking about the the Jason says, you know, it, the the qualifications should be the easiest part of everything, and the way that you get there is everybody has to get to that level before they can before they can move on. I know we just touched on a ton of different topics here. Any other guys <laughs> want to go?
0: I think it's really interesting when we talk about the qualifications being the bare minimum, because I mean we've all been there and we've seen it. I mean, not for me as an instructor, but I've been an RSO where we, I watch my instructors on the range and there's people that can't meet minimum qualification or it's a struggle the, the entire time. What happens where like there's, there has to be something where an officer comes in or it's whether it's a soldier or an officer, it doesn't matter. They come in to do this training and you know, we've seen it time and time again where they don't want to be there. You know, they don't, if they're not mandated to be on the range, they're not going to go. If they're man- not mandated to go on a, a run or get on a treadmill, they're not going to do it if they're not getting paid for it. But when we talk about firearms, we're talking about something that when we talk force on force, this is this is the ultimate option. I mean, if you have to use your firearm to protect yourself or to, to protect someone else, I mean, that's that's a very significant escalation. But now we have people that don't take this as seriously as they would defensive tactics training or learning how to use a computer or anything like that. So where's where's that disconnect? Why? Why are we still finding that officers don't care about going to the range? They don't care about even shooting when they don't have to.
1: I think a lot of it comes back to uh, the firearms culture that we've established on the range over over time. You know, uh, when I first started in law enforcement, it was very rigid, very structured, very kind of military. And that may work fine with 17, 18, 19 year olds fresh out of high school. But when you're dealing with, uh, you know, some adults that actually have some life experience, yelling at them just doesn't work. So now all of a sudden they come out on the range. They have a a negative feedback or they have a negative experience uh, throughout the the their introduction to firearms. And now we, we ask ourselves, well, how come they don't like coming to the range? Why do they always come to the range fearing what's going to happen? Well, it's because we as instructors have engaged in belittling them, embarrassing them, yelling at them, and nobody likes any of those things. So yeah, uh, I would think that going to the range under those in that environment would kind of suck. So I think that, us as instructors, we got to recognize that. We've got to own that. And once we own that, then we can work on changing the, uh, the atmosphere, the learning environment out on the range. Once they enjoy coming out, uh, then all of a sudden it becomes something that they want to do that they look forward to, to, to doing. They're not going to come out. They're not going to get embarrassed. They're not going to be belittled. And it's absolutely possible to, Train to, train to your all-stars. Make sure that your all-star shooters are getting all the training that they need to push their skills while not embarrassing your, your lower-performing shooters out on the range. And a lot of it has to do with changing their attitudes towards the range because we've changed the learning environment. But we got to start with us. If we don't own that as being our problem, if we don't own it as being the root cause of the problem, then it's never going to change. But once we make it something that they enjoy doing, they'll come out and they'll learn and they'll have a good time and we can make it fun.
3: You know, I think uh, I think Todd hit it right on the head there. Uh, In the past, we did take more of a militaristic viewpoint of how we did firearms training. But in reality, it's 2020. And we have to look at the fact that we are dealing with task specific adult learners who have volunteered to come into a profession to go in harm's way of people they have never met before, to keep those people safe and alive. And I think we have to rethink, as Todd was saying, the instructor mentality. Um, You know, the old school, do it because I'm telling you to do it, won't work anymore. Through the magic of uh, formats like YouTube and other videos that we have available to us, we can start a class a live fire class by, let's say, we're dealing with close quarter shootings. We can get a myriad of actual videos of cops in close quarter spontaneous shootings from the Internet and show them to our students. Our goal isn't just to improve performance. That's, that's not going to happen if they feel like you're forcing it down their throat. Our goal is to get them into a competence- and confidence feedback loop, a loop where they start saying, oh, you know what? The instructor didn't yell at me. I I shot that course of fire a little bit better this time than I usually do, and they were really positive about it. They weren't negative at all. And, you know, I I didn't mind doing that. I'm going to try and do a little better. And as we improve their competence, we improve their confidence. As their confidence increases mentally, They start feeling better about themselves because they are doing better, and they want to do even more. So our goal as an instructor is first to create the need for whatever skill we're teaching, firearms, hand-to-hand, emergency vehicle operation, uh, any core critical skill that will keep that student alive. uh, It's our goal to create a need for it. We motivate them by showing them, in this case, in this day and age, modern videos, current videos of officers involved in critical incidents and say, look, it does happen. Then you can run a screen up from LOCA, law enforcement officers killed and assaulted, and say, here's the numbers. Here's what happened this many times last year. And, and we'll find that somewhere between 70 and 80 plus percent of the time, the shootings are close quarter spontaneous shootings. So as we show them videos of close-quarter spontaneous shootings, now our students realize, holy cow, this could happen to me. Uh, And and it it can happen fast, and I better be able to keep myself alive. So we create the need as instructors, and it's paramount upon us to create the need, but to also present the skill set in a viable manner for a task-specific adult learner who volunteered to come into this profession and risk their lives for others. So we have to let them know the risk is there and we have to teach them and get them to buy into the fact that we will help keep them alive in this type of encounter. So it's really all about how we motivate our students nowadays. And the old, um, God bless his soul, R. Lee Ermey method, you know, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, those days should be long gone. You, You might get away with it at the academy, But even at the academy, when I break down into teaching individual techniques or tactics to the students, including firearm stuff, you know, I do it as a, look, I've been there. I've been in these encounters. Here's videos of these encounters still going on today. You're going to need to know this. Pay attention. Let's get to it. You know, it is not, you know, what is your major malfunction? You're jerking the trigger. You're doing that. Your grip is all right. It's not about that. When I approach a student, it's like, hey, that's not bad. They could be the worst shooter on the planet. But I'm going to approach them and say, that's not bad. You want to tune it up a little bit? You want to make it even better than you're already doing? Because let's face it, some of our students initially, they don't shoot groups. They don't even shoot gatherings. Their targets look like a bad family reunion, and it's up to us to try and fix that for them. But we can only do that if we get them to understand that it very much can happen to them And they have to help us along the road.
1: You know, I find it really interesting that in the IDPA USPSA three gun world that we've got people come out on the range for the first time with a very low skill level and they keep coming back. Right. Uh, The the shooting sports are becoming more and more popular. So what are we doing in the competitive world that we aren't doing in the law enforcement world out on the range? You know, the we're making a bad environment, a bad learning atmosphere out in the law enforcement ranges. And yet in IVPA, you come out, you get oftentimes, depending on what club you're shooting with, you'll get somebody to, to work with you and mentor you as far as the rules and the safety procedures and those kinds of things. It's really laid back. It's low stress, even though you're shooting at a low skill level on the range in front of people maybe for the first time ever and somebody's running a, t- a shot timer uh, and all of a sudden they're coming back but in law enforcement we have trouble just paying them to come out on the range you know it's being able to shoot other people's ammo and get paid for it should be every cop's dream and yet we we struggle because they don't want to be there out on the IDPA, USPSA, and three-gun range, they keep coming back.
2: I'm going to say some of that is just some of it is our traditional police culture that becomes problematic for us as instructors and as police officers. And I, I know that there's, um, there's fear these days about going too far into the um, safe space territory where, oh, God, we're, we're treating people like they're all delicate flowers. And it's not about that. I like the idea of creating more of a brave space in our training where trainers can be um, honest about their feedback and the feedback goes back and forth between the students and the instructors. And again, we're getting away from that whole style where it's this, this yelling, jumping up and down. You did something wrong as opposed to, hey, let's work on this and, and make it better together like uh, Joe was talking about. Um, I think that also goes to the passion the fellow was talking about in this whole concept where the instructor should keep on learning and bringing uh, better information, more information. Um, we, we need to keep our quest going for the things that we bring into our training to help inspire that sense of wonder and, and, and like he was saying, fun. Uh, that this should be a at least a good learning experience, and maybe we still have students are, who who aren't entirely comfortable with firearms, but we can at least get them to a point where the the fear is less, and um and they have the idea that they can handle a situation that they come up against. Should should at least be one of our goals. You know,
0: it's interesting just listening to you guys all explain this. I mean, it it sounds to me like gamification of training. So turning it into some type of game competition with the people that you have in your class so that they're engaged and, and actively want to participate in that game. Um, now, that can obviously be harder with people that are, you know, a little bit longer in the tooth. Sometimes, like we said, they just don't want to be there. But I mean, are there certain are there certain things that each of you do in your training courses that you have found that really help to engage your students?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that, uh, in all of our classes, one of the things that we like to do is, is to make sure that as instructors we're there to facilitate the learning. Um, but we want to get them engaged because the, if, if they're engaged, they're going to, they're going to walk away with, with more information and the way to get them engaged is to get them to buy in right off the bat that they are important and that we are not, um, we are not the end-all, do-all experts at the front of the class. You know, the the guy wearing the, the red shirt and carrying a Sharpie, um, that we want their feedback. We want their uh, criticism. We want their constructive criticism. We want the good, the bad, the ugly. Help us make this better. And I think that as long as we get them engaged in kind of that continuous feedback loop, as opposed to us just always telling them what they're doing wrong, then... I think the results are going to be much better.
2: Yeah. You'll get guys to who, who maybe haven't been engaged for years that you start getting them more directly involved and um, set some expectations for them and encourage them to get there and they get inspired again. They start having a good time with their training again. i found that that works.
3: Mm. Yeah. And I'm not sure. Uh, your your term gamification, I understand it, and I know where you're coming from, but I I definitely make them understand that it's no game. Um, now, don't get me wrong. Human beings, uh, many human beings like to compete with one another, and, and friendly competition can uh, improve skills uh, if somebody wants to, quote unquote, beat the other person's score or time or both. Um, but From the get-go, you know, just a few weeks ago, I was teaching a block on spontaneous attacks with a knife. And I started the class by saying, you know, everybody says it's not going to happen to me. And I showed them a a video of a police captain in Ohio attacked by a a truck driver with, with a screwdriver. He literally leapt out of his truck onto the captain, stabbed him twice in the neck. The captain tactically retreats, gets his firearm out, and puts 11 rounds into the bad guy. Um, so I, I don't know that I'd call it a game, gamification, although I appreciate the terminology. I understand where you're coming from. But it's definitely motivation. An instructor's goal is to create a need for the skill. Make the student <clears throat> understand that what we're teaching today is an important skill set that you need to keep yourself alive. And in the process of creating the skill, our goal is to create motivation. If gaming or the gamification aspect helps motivate them, then I'm I'm all for that term, but at the same time, at some point in this training, we have to let them know this is deadly serious. You're, you you've got to go home to your family every day, whether we're talking about how to you know how to prepare for the COVID-19 virus and what to do on duty to keep yourself from coming down with it, um, or we're talking about a, a running gun battle with a bad guy. It's all about the motivation factor.
4: Uh, maybe I use wrong the term fun. Maybe for game, whatever.
3: Uh, no, no. I even agree with the, using the term fun. I no. think training should be fun. Even if it's deadly serious training, um, we, we can't keep them in that negative mindset for hours at a time. That's going to burn anybody out. So I, I totally agree with your concept of fun. Fun's a great idea. Training can be fun. But it can also be fun training that will keep me alive if somebody's trying to kill me. Of course. I, goal, I, do, I think fun concept.
0: Yeah. My my thought with that was it from my experience, for example, I mean, with when we trained with the military, we shot figure eleven targets, right? So you get up to the range, it didn't matter what you what what system you were running, we shot figure eleven targets. There was a huge difference for me from going to shooting figure eleven targets to shooting steel plates because you get that automatic feedback and you get the, you know, you fire, you get the ting, you fire, you get the ting. When you're shooting paper targets, you're not getting any feedback. So it's more when, when I use the gamification, I mean, it's a lot different to try to get somebody to hit six shots center mass than it is to get them to knock down six plates and in, in six shots. That's, and that's, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Yeah, no. And that's,
3: that's phenomenal. Cause when we look at that, when we look at the, performance psychology issues involved in there, those steel targets, those knockdown targets that drop, as soon as the student hits that target, they do get instant feedback. That instant feedback immediately gives them a boost in their confidence because their competence was there. Every time they hit their target and they hear that ping or the target falls over, their brain goes, man, you did it just right. You did a good thing. And as that happens, and as, again, although their skill is physically improving, emotionally, their brain's also saying, man, that was awesome. You did a good job. Let's do that some more. And the confidence competence feedback loop generates a desire to do more in the human brain. Any performance psychologist would tell you that. The better you do, the better you want to do. And the better you feel about it, and that's a that's the perfect cycle we want them into.
4: And if we need to quote have fun to do that, that's awesome. This is why I think, personally, during the training, uh, use a mix of target metal and steel every time, not only metal or only paper, and because people make take more passion to see the quick result and instead of run and wait and take a look about the target or you know someone do some BS like take a shot outside. With metal target, you, you cannot do it. If you hit the target, you hear or hold down. You need to pay attention. So using both is my 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 goal. So it or you you the risk uh, Became go to the sp- too too much sport uh, corner of the shot of the shooting, like uh, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. No. <laughs> I lost my words.
2: It's, it's okay. It, it, you you don't want to lose the mission of of the training. So to go too far into the sporting aspect of it, too far into the over oh, competing with each other, and and losing track and focus of the of the entire purpose. But mixing up the targets and making sure that we're adding things in like everybody's been talking about to make it more interesting to our students. Um, I'm also going to propose, too, that for, for different students being um, con- conscience, conscious of the type of style that they respond to most, because you still are going to have maybe some of your old school students who respond to the early early style. And that's okay for them. It's just we shouldn't be generalizing, I think, anybody in, in our classes um, in the sense that if we, if we see somebody who's obviously not responding to, to what we're putting out there, um, we need to be evaluating ourselves and be humble enough to change up our styles or to, to remember that, hey, some people are going to receive information in different ways.
1: See, and I totally agree with what everybody said about mixing up targets. Uh, on one thing about using steel targets, though, is that oftentimes people use tar- uh, steel targets that are too large. And so they're not getting the training value that they really should be getting uh, by testing themselves with s- smaller size targets. So instead of using a 16-inch, uh, you know, circle piece of steel, make it an 8- or 10-inch piece of steel. That's, that's more realistic. M- mix in some 6-inch pieces of steel instead of you know always using the uh, you know larger torso type of, of steel targets and when it comes to competition on the, on the range I think competition can be good the kind of
4: gamification thing
1: but it's de- we are we're training law enforcement officers and, and that is absolutely deadly serious and if we overuse competition that can be detrimental to the to the process because you're you're you are you are uh, lower skill level shooters aren't going to want to put themselves out there all the time in mm-hmm. a competitive environment. So you got to be kind of careful how you do that. Uh, specialized teams, you know, SWAT okay. teams, drug teams, traffic teams, these kinds of things uh, that are that are highly competitive anyway. That's a great format for for more competition type of uh, type of training classes. Uh, beginner students. I I, I kind of stay away mm-hmm. from the competition thing with with new shooters uh, until they get to a point where now they're starting to compete within themselves anyway, and then we may do we may mix something in, but got to be careful how you use that competition.
3: I I totally agree with that. Um, the last thing we want to do is demotivate our students, and that's what uh, as Tab was saying, and, and I agree with him if if we make shooting a big competition and we've got some low end shooters, it will demotivate them. And so, you know, part of the, part of the aspect is we've got to improve the individual and we have to deal with them as individuals. You know, I came from, came from an agency where we had 160 officers to train and now I'm working for an agency where we have 1400 officers to train and um, we've got a higher percentage of low end shooters. And, and when I, I watched them on the line shooting with other officers that are Decent to good shooters, and and you can just see it as they're picking up their magazines at the end of a run. You can just see it in their face that they're they're just you know they're just down in the dumps because everybody's out shooting them. So a lot of times I'll take that individual student and when everybody's gone. I'll run them through the course again and try and get their confidence through their competence up high again, so that they want to come back. My agency we shoot every month, and I. You know, the last thing I want somebody doing is leaving range demotivated because we all know then they've got, you know, 29 more days to sit back and say, oh, man, i got to go to the range. And we all want just the opposite. We want that student saying, man, I can't wait till we can shoot again. Because, again, I'll, I'll use that term because that was, that was fun. I enjoyed it. I shot well. I shot the course of fire, and I did it well. And I want to do that again, and I want to see what we're going to do next month what's next most course of fire. So that's our goal. And, and you're right. Competition can demotivate your low end shooters. And we don't want that.
0: It's it. That brings up an interesting point for me because we're, we're kind of now getting into what should we be doing as far as training? Um, I mean, for agencies like, you know, Joe, like you were saying, you guys shoot once a month. I, I don't know how many people that are going to listen to this or watch this where they're like, "Well, shit, we only go to the range once a year." Um, where's if if you had the opportunity to say, "Hey, listen, every police agency in North America or every police agency in the world has to train X amount of days, what would what would you guys think is that that sweet spot when it comes to making sure that their their skill level is up to par?"
1: Are we talking about something that's actually realistic or are we talking fine in the sky? <laughs> okay well let's well yeah okay.
0: let's let's go something that would be more
1: realistic see I, I i would i am an advocate of uh increased frequency decreased duration uh you know a lot i know a lot of agencies where they may go to the range like once or twice a year and it's for eight hours at a time and i gotta tell you that there's not a lot of of retention once they leave the range as far as the skill level that was developed. Uh, so if in a perfect world, I would say that if we got them out to the range for an hour uh, or 45 minutes to an hour twice a month, and you gave me 50 rounds each time, I would be a happy camper. That'd be that'd be great. We'd be able to, to really do a lot to increase their, their skill level on demand. And I guarantee you that they would retain more of that skill level uh, between training sessions than that twice a year for eight hours at a time. Mm-hmm.
0: Paulo, how about you? When when you're talking about training that you guys are doing in the UK, is there, is it any different? Or are you guys still doing the once a year type thing?
4: UK. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I, I love my flag and I, don't want to say anything against my country, but uh, our situation is that not about COVID-19 right now, also for that, but because we have a completely different mentality than, than you. I'm talking about the United States. I think, I don't want to say anything wrong, but it's about 50 uh, rounds per year is the by, by the administration. Year fifty round. I don't do my warm up with fifty round because I like shot, shooting, of course. But and we need to create. This is why I think uh, be in a uh, instructor community like a lot of your uh, association here in the United States is create a uh, a sort of global instruction so where they we are on the same level to take the same uh, words to the student and improve the, their uh, skills. In Italy it, if you don't pay by your wallet, the state don't give you money for, for training. except for of course special guy and special police officer. we don't have SWAT, but we have uh, GIS and uh, you Knox from the state police uh they are super trained but the first responder what we call the normal police officer mm. no we are we are bad not because students are bad or police officer don't want but if I need to pay by my wallet the training there's something wrong and it's not police uh officer fault. again
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Alexandra, Alexandra I'd like to your opinion on this too, but we have, I mean, that speaks to a lot to what we talk about and what we've talked about on this show in the past where, you know, officers have to pay out of pocket for their training. You know, if, if, and, and why, and why is that still a thing, right? I mean, that's, and that's, I think that's the biggest, you know, issue for everybody is if there's officers that are wanting to do the training, why are agencies saying, no, this is your allocated amount of rounds for the year, that's it. I mean, I have, I have buddies that are in agencies up here in Canada and they're, and here's, and here's what happens. They get allotted a certain amount of rounds per year. And some of them are like, I don't want them. And then they'll give them off, slough them off to somebody else. So somebody ends up with hundreds and hundreds of rounds and somebody will end up with just, just what they need to do their qualifications. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, I'll take them, but I mean, that's, that's just it. So why is that, why is that kind of stuff still happening?
1: Well I think part of the reason is as I just to jump in here real quick is you know I don't think any of us want to live in, a, in an area where we're paying so many so much in taxes that there are, all the taxpayers are going to fund all the training that we need or think we need all right that we think we need uh, because you know I, I would love to have the, the you know somebody give me you know 40,000 rounds a year to, to play with and I know that that's not going to happen. But, uh, you know, when it comes to, to funding our, some of our own training out of our own pocket, man, I've been doing that for 25 years and, you know, going to Ailita. My agency's never paid for me to, to go to Ailita. But I think that, you know, the bottom line is we choose this career. Our, our family didn't choose this career for us. Our friends didn't choose this career for us. Um, you know, the people that we care about didn't choose this career for us. So we owe it to them not to suck. And if, if we choose to suck, then, you know, that's kind of on us. But I do agree that we need our agencies need to a lot more training time, more training uh, money, more ammo to get skill level up to a to a, a, a competent level. But, you know, I don't think that when it comes to our agencies uh, spending all, you know, all this money, to make sure that every officer gets 10,000 rounds a year to to shoot. That's just not realistic. It's not going to happen.
0: It brings up another point and I'm, we're going to end up jumping into this. So we might as well do it now. There's a difference between live fire training, simulated training and force on force training. Where can those be used to supplement officer training when the budget isn't there for live rounds or maybe the time isn't there to do live fire? Who wants to take that one to start with?
2: Um, Well, I I can start out with it and tell you that uh, we uh, recently built a new police station and put a virtual system in it. And um, it is going to be, I think a great tool for us to be able to supplement our range training because we don't have to spend uh, the money on the ammunition. I mean, obviously there's the outlay for the equipment, but once you have um, well qualified trainers who can debrief the scenarios properly, and I, I think that's one of the critical parts of it—getting um, your people through it and allowing them the time to do that um, as as they have the interest. So not only um, not only the official training, but allowing them to say, "Hey, you know, I was going to spend some time on the range, but can we go and, and run through some scenarios?" is going to be a great supplement and a way for them to get into that decision making. Type training that um, prior to that, when we do force on force scenarios, for example, we, we have to we have to dedicate a building and dedicate sims uh, rounds and the the weapons to use with those, all the protective gear and the time and all the stuff that goes into that, which which has its place. It's great, um, but the the um, simulated stuff going to give us a lot more flexibility to do it more frequently. So I, I think it's it's super beneficial. And so what we can do um, on the range as well as the other end with the force on force scenarios. Mm-hmm.
3: I, I totally agree with that. I, my professional opinion is that uh, live fire punching holes in, in paper targets, um, if we will, if we, as we said earlier, qualification um, is really about 10 percent of what an officer needs to know to survive an actual gun battle. So I think systems like the virtual simulator or or similar systems, I think force on force, and to be honest, even the CERT pistol, laser pistols, I think those are all incredible tools that we can use, uh, especially with those students that just, they don't mind learning survival skills or or combative pistol skills or long gun skills. They just don't like the live fire portion of it. I I think things like laser trainers, To some degree, even blue gun training, when we talk about tactics, you know, how to clear a building, things like that, a laser pistol, um, some munitions, even a blue gun. uh, And, and, you know, folding that into our firearms training uh, is very relevant. And it's very important for the student because, again, just shooting on on that two-dimensional range doesn't give them a full understanding of combat handgun or combat long gun tactics. They've got to be in the arena.
1: Yeah, you know, I agree with what they said. I'm a big supporter of uh, the simulators. I'm like Vertra and Milo. I'm a big, big uh, proponent of reality-based training, but it doesn't um, take the place of live-fire training on the range when it comes to uh, skill development. When it comes to to actually shooting live rounds downrange, uh, developing the skill that it takes to make those rounds go when and where you want them to go Um, that requires training on the live fire range the you can't simulate with uh, in reality-based training whether you're using fx marking cartridges or another product uh, you can't simulate the recoil you can't simulate the feel of the gun you can't uh, simulate the velocity of the slide during recoil all of those things change even the sound is different so it takes the live fire range to do that. It takes a live fire range to, uh, even as good as a CERT pistol is on training reloads, it takes a live fire range to really uh, get the, that type of weapon handling skill up to, up to part. Once you have developed the skills, once you have um, continuously worked to improve those skills, then you start to, to go into the simulators where you're working on use of force decision making. You get into reality based training where you're kind of putting all of those skills that you learned on the live fire range, skills that you learned in CIT training, uh, skills that you learned in the use of force decision making training, kind of all into play in reality based training. But those two things can't take the place of live fire. I actually had a new officer uh, at an agency qualify in the Sallyport of the police department. Using uh, marking cartridges. No. Okay. Now, qualification, again, test the minimum standards, don't really care about that. But is it really testing minimum standards with live ammunition if really what you're doing is is shooting force on force ammo? Uh, that doesn't
4: make any sense to me. Yeah. Mm. Is, is this, is this for me, the mm, scene gun, force on force, or defensive technique is the step ahead. Uh, when you when the student have a, a I, wanna, I don't want to say super decent level because I'm not correct, but at, when you have enough skills like fire, you can mix with, uh, with, with uh, skin gun or force-on-force. Force. Or some people, in my humble opinion, opinion uh, and with my experience, a lot of time when I see force-on-force force training, now is the the word "fun" is using in the wrong, uh, with the wrong, with the wrong in the wrong way. So they have fun. So nobody hurts. Uh, I shot you, you shot me. I don't care about the 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 space in Rio and what happened because it's like a game. I see some uh, video uh, about force on force. Uh, around the car, and it's, it's like see airsoft uh, uh, air guys playing together in the wood. It's something not really, really... Uh, training value? Yes, without training value, exactly. Sorry. I,
3: I would agree with both um, comments from, from Tad and Polo, both. Um, my, my, again, my humble opinion, if they can't shoot a real gun on the range and shoot mm-hmm. it well, it, what what CERT pistols do, what Vertra does, what Force on Force does, is teach tactics. And, and I'll define that so everybody knows where I'm coming from. It teaches the tactics of getting the gun to the gunfight. Whether we're talking about clearing a room, clearing a corner, making a traffic stop and approaching on the passenger side. Those are all tactics to get the gun into the gunfight, if, if there's going to be a gunfight, but only shooting that real gun on the range is going to allow them to shoot a real gun in a
1: shootout. So I I agree with both both of you that it's well, one shooting. of the big one of the big drawbacks of, of uh, force on force training. And and when I say force on force, I don't. You know, whether you're, I don't care what you're using, whether it's airsoft or FX marking cartridges or the force on force ammo or whatever, uh, UTM, it doesn't make any difference. One of the big drawbacks of reality based training is the fact that there's still no expectation of serious physical injury or death if you fail. That could be good in a training environment, but it can also lead to, uh, kind of that it's just a game. It's airsoft. It's paintball. Uh, so you've got to be really careful how you approach this. Without that expectation of serious physical injury or death, uh, mm-hmm. officers are going to be doing things that they normally wouldn't be doing because all, they know that really it's, it's, it's a paintball game. So you got to be careful with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that this kind of brings to mind is when we talk about building out dynamic scenario training, It comes down to the level of competency of the instructor, and they have to understand how to correctly build out the scenarios so that you're not doing a detriment to the student. Um, For example, I mean, if if we're doing like CQC training, whether it's with sim rounds or with something like a stress vest or something like that, there has to be something built in there. Too too often we see this where somebody will run through a scenario, you'll go through a, a building or you'll go through clearing a house or a room or a level. And then as soon as it's done, it's okay. And X reset. It's like, okay, well if we were literally firing live rounds and and we're actually building on a dynamic scenario, where's the, you know, where are we doing the buddy, the self check, the buddy check, where are we doing uh, the casualty care, you know, securing the area, all of the different types of things that happen after an actual force on force altercation. But in training, those aren't being done in a lot of cases. So where where does that responsibility lie? Does it lie on the organization? Does it lie on the instructor? Where where do you guys think that should fall?
1: It relies on us. We own that.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm asking a question because I'm just trying to open up the discussion point here. But I mean, that's for me. I mean, my experience being with the military, we've done you know we did Fibua, we did uh, CQC stuff. But a lot of times, like you were talking about, we started from, from day one. I mean, our training was built out over the course of a year. So if we're doing we, you, everything from learning how to handle your firearm correctly. So we're doing so much dry training that, you know, we do dry training for six months before we even get the guys into out on a range. Or maybe we're doing shooting blanks in, a, in the back 40. And then we move into the actual live range. And then we move into individual live fire Uh, team live fire, section live fire, platoon and company live fire. And it keeps, it progresses as we go through the training cycles. From a law enforcement perspective, how should we be building out those training cycles so that we're not just repeating the same stuff every single year. And there's actually some type of growth in the skill level of the student.
2: Um, That's actually the first part of it. In my opinion is that you have a, a strategic plan in your firearms training. So it's not simply, Oh wait, it's time to qualify again. It's a surprise every year, but there, there should be, um, a, a progression to what you're teaching people. And, and to, again, it's like a strategic plan for your firearms training and where you want people to be in five, 10 years. And all of those things should be building on, on the last lesson.
0: Yeah. Todd, when you're running when you guys are putting together your training courses, what what is the first thing that that you do when you're when you're going into an agency, what do they supply you with like, hey, this is what we're doing right now, or do you kind of come in with your own thing saying, Hey, listen, this is how we do training, it's different than what you're doing, and here's why?
1: It it depends on what the expectations are of that agency. Generally speaking programs. They don't want us to already now. So our job is to do things maybe in a different way. Maybe get them the same way than to think different way. Then to reconsider talk-
0: what be true. Yeah, drew. I don't I didn't really catch too much of that I don't know about the rest of you guys. I think we got a little laggy on that one. Yep. Yeah, no, it it seemed that way, yeah. Yeah. Can you can you repeat yourself there, Todd?
1: Yeah, no problem. It, when, it, when we go into a department, the departments don't really want us to teach them what they already know. Uh, so when we go in, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to get their instructors to perform at a higher level. We're trying to get them to question what they know to be true. We want, the, we want to develop critical thinkers. We want them to reevaluate uh, what they do and how they do things and take a fresh look at it. But we've, we, I think we've really overcomplicated uh, firearms training and when it comes to teaching the just the basic essential fundamental skills of marksmanship uh, it's become some mystical thing and really it's pretty simple uh, it's shooting platform sights trigger right it's shooting platform wh- how they interact with the gun their grip those types of thing how they see their sights and how they work the trigger and we show them ways to simplify it both from the instructor standpoint from the student standpoint Instructors, one of the one of the things that I think instructors uh, struggle with the most is diagnosing shooters, uh, providing them actual accurate feedback into how what they're doing uh, at the gun and, and what they can change in order to improve the results downrange. Being able to diagnose the is absolutely critical, and, and most instructors aren't very good at it, and it's because we overcomplicate it. You know, if we have five to seven uh, fundamentals of marksmanship, how and what how many com- possible combinations could be going wrong as opposed to let's break it down to three things and, and get the instructor and the shooter to think, of that, think that way. And so that's kind of what we do and, and uh, what we want to do when we go in to, to work with an agency's instructors or instructors are coming to our class. You know, we want to get them to be able to, to simplify it, to build better shooters, get Shooters to understand what it takes to make accurate hits and then get shooters to kind of increase their uh, combative speed and accuracy, their ability to make accurate hits under uh, combat time duress. So if you've got a short period of time and you've got to get multiple accurate shots on target in uh, in order to stop the fight, then what do we do to get those shooters to to be more accurate much quicker and. Uh, then how do we develop courses of fire that, again, challenge our all-star shooters without overwhelming our beginning shooters? It's kind of what we do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to. I want to read one thing here real quick. And this was one of the comments that was sent. So this was sent in by uh, Jason Lustenberg. Now, if, if somebody's watching this, and they don't know who he is. He's the executive director for the National Law Enforcement uh, Firearms Instructors Association. And and here's what he had just sent to me real quickly in a message. He said. A 40- or 80-hour firearms instructor certification course does not teach a person everything they should know to run a complete firearms training program. Um, let's talk about that for a minute because, I mean, that's what we want to do here is help the instructors that maybe aren't at the level of, of you guys or some of the higher level people around the country. Where do instructors need to start and what is that minimum standard?
3: So what I I'll, – I'll start off on this one. I call the the typical instructor and and understand the academy I teach at. We run a 40 hour pistol instructor school. And in my humble opinion, although we do the best we can in 40 hours, I, I like to call these people 40 hour wonders. And what, you know, what I find at the end of the week is they're much better shooters, but they don't know a lot about teaching people how to shoot. They don't understand performance psychology. They don't understand the motivational perspectives. Um, they understand grip, stance, sight alignment and better. They're, they're much better shooters, but we don't emphasize enough, in, in my humble opinion, at least here in Michigan, we don't emphasize enough of this is how you teach. This is how you look for your shooters to have problems. This is how you diagnose them. This is how you help them. Now, in, in my state, they tend to graduate being a better shooter, but not necessarily a very good instructor.
2: I absolutely agree with where he's coming from. Um, I I went through the first firearms course I went through is the 40 hour, you know, stamp and everything I've learned about being an instructor as I continue to learn about being an instructor has been from finding other firearms classes, other instructors who, who could mentor me. Um, But it's also about going outside of the firearms world and finding other information about human factors, about um, the psychology of teaching, coaching, of finding other people whose styles work and who, who seem to catch their audience and appeal to them and learning from as many people as I can. Um, and some of that also goes to attending classes where you're like, oh, my God, I don't want to be anything like that instructor and learning the things you don't want to do. Did you have anything to add?
1: <laughs> Jason's absolutely right. Uh, you know, being a, uh, an instructor doesn't start uh, or does actually just start with the 40 or 80-hour uh initial instructor development class, but that's not where it ends. But unfortunately, a lot of, of the check writers think that, Hey, you're an instructor now, you don't need any more training. And that's unfortunate because, uh, you know, once you've got that instructor certification, you know, just enough to be kind of dangerous to your students. Uh, it's time to go out and start uh, learning how to actually be a teacher, how to be a trainer, how to be a coach, uh, going out to, you know, Organizations like uh, Ileta and going to the annual conference, going to ILFE's annual training conference, uh, joining in Lefia and going to some of the in Lefia trainings, those provide an opportunity to maybe see a different approach, talk, talk to and listen to different instructors and take what what worked on their range and see if you can make it work for you. Uh, go to places like Gunsight, uh, go take a, a class from Dave Spaulding or Chris Serino uh, go take, uh, classes from, uh, you know, former military guys like, uh, Haley or, or Pat McNamara and see where, where not only your, your shooting skills lie, but see if you can pick up some more instructor, uh, tidbits in order to be a better stru- instructor because your job is to find solutions for your, for your students. And if you're not finding solutions for your students, you're just teaching the same old stuff that we've been teaching for 150 years in exactly the same way that resulted in the, the poor hit rate that we've already got
0: that you know, brings up a really interesting point about you know learning from I'm one person here is has actually had the chance to to work with Rex Applegate so Joe I want I want to ask you what was it like attending hit having him be your instructor and learning from somebody like that
3: Wow. Well, thanks for asking that in, in, uh, in loving memory of the colonel. Uh, so the viewers know and, and my fellow participants know, I was actually attending a police conference in St. Louis trying to get more training. And I was walking through the vendors area as part of that conference. And uh, Colonel Applegate was standing at a booth uh, for uh, Body Armor. And I knew the owner of the Body Armor Company, and he introduced me to Colonel Applegate. Now just in awe. So my first session with Colonel Rex Applegate, was sitting in his hotel room that night with him talking about close quarter. And again, you know, I, earlier in this cast podcast, we, uh, we, we talked about uh, motivating people and, and doing a task analysis. Of course, Applegate was famous during World War II as being a member of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, our first real spy network. And then in 47, when the OSS was disbanded, he went to work uh, in Mexico importing guns, supposedly importing guns in Mexico to sell. But that was actually just a front for the CIA, who he was working for at the time. And um, anyway, w- with that said, uh, Colonel Applegate's world, his environment wasn't of a uniformed police officer responding to domestics or making traffic stops. He was always a spy. And so everything happened to him pretty much up close and personal toes to toes, nose to nose. So here we sit in a hotel room one night in St. Louis, and he starts telling me what it's like to kill somebody up close with a handgun, with a revolver specifically. You could bury it in their ribs and pull the trigger five times and it would keep working. Um, Up close with a knife, uh, the the way he had to do things at the time. But he also had some running gun battles while he was in Mexico. Um, So it, it was fascinating to hear from a guy who, for me, looking at it as whether I'm at a domestic or on a traffic stop, I'm probably, probably going to have a close quarter shooting. I, I could really relate to what he was telling me. And then I, uh, it wasn't too long after that, I got a chance to go to Hocking College in Nelsonville, Ohio, which is where Colonel Rex put on his official Applegate Point Shooting Instructor School, which was 40 hours long. Well, 45, 50 hours long. It was a week-long class. Uh, you already had to be a firearms instructor to get into it. Uh, but then we went through the formal training, but many more times after that, I was lucky to know the Colonel for eight years, met him in 1990. He passed away July 14th, 1998. And, uh, um, the first year I saw him, I, I was teaching at, a uh, the advanced law enforcement training camp, a Letsey, in uh, Provo, Utah and the Colonel was there. And, uh, he uh, did a lecture on point shooting, and there were not a lot of fans in that part of the country. More people had been to gunsight than had been to his training. so they literally booed him and walked out of the presentation. And uh, I promised him that I would come back the next year and teach his point shooting program. And he said, uh, "Joseph, I don't think they want that." But uh, I did. I came back and with the help of uh, Bruce Sittle, who I've trained with since 1985. Uh, we came up with a great title for the program because when I said I wanted to teach point shooting at letsey, they said, no, we don't need it. So we taught a class called, um, let's see, the physiological aspects of close quarter shootings and training techniques that overcome them. And for the next seven years in a row, I came back to full classes uh, and taught Applegate's point shooting system. So learning from the colonel was quite a privilege and an honor. Uh, he had seen the elephant more than once, uh, both during the war and then in Mexico after the war. He had been involved in several close-quarter shootings. So uh, training with Colonel Applegate was, was very special. He, uh, he was very passionate about anybody who legally carried a gun knowing how to use it. Law enforcement, corrections, military, civilian, he didn't care. Uh, if you carried a gun to keep yourself alive, he wanted you to know how to use it, and he was very motivational. And, and very funny. Part of my teaching style, the way I, I present today, is because of Colonel Opera. See, I yeah,
1: think I that think that's, that's super, super important. important. When, when we talk, talk about, about uh, uh, you know, you take, know take, going to Ning schools and, and learning from other instructors, that allows us to kind of incorporate some of their styles into what we do out on the range. So uh, I think that that's one of the critical reasons to. To seek outside training instead of just, you know, doing the same old thing that we've always been doing.
3: Yeah, you know, the colonel. One of the colonel's quotes was, "When you can tell what they had for dinner, uh, and and you're having a shootout with them or a knife
1: fight, then then you know it's close." So. Yeah, the bad breath distance. Um, yeah, I yeah. like the way he puts it.
3: Yeah, no, he was, uh, it, it was, it was, uh, I've been very lucky in my life. You know, I met Bruce Siddall in 85 and Bruce Siddell's really big into the science of survival and, and looking at human performance and, and, and human performance factors. And then I got to combine that with Colonel Applegate's techniques. And uh, it, it was, it was, I'm a very lucky guy. You know, some people want to have big cars or fast boats or expensive houses I'm just happy to be me and you know I have 43 years on the job and still moving along and still training cops and having trained with people like like Colonel Applegate and Bruce Sittle.
1: so. Paulo, um, in Italy what are your opportunities to train with other instructors and to improve your uh, instructor abilities, your instructor knowledge? Another question? Yeah. What What do you do
4: in Italy? To- no, another question was a joke.
2: No, yeah. uh, this is why I travel
4: a lot. <laughs> this is why I, this is why I travel a lot because you know, uh, except for Joe, I, uh, on my side, uh, this world is running by men, and when you need to deal with, uh, I, I don't know if I can say this, but high level of testosterone. It's always, oh, I'm the, I'm better than you. I shot better than you. My experience is better than I was in Iraq or whatever. I'm not here for tell you how many people I kill in my life or how many bad guys I stop. I, I'm here to help you to improve your skills and give the right or a different path to, fo- to follow or improve your uh, again accuracy and whatever you need and I don't want to be an <clears throat> but in Italy is very very difficult to, to, to do this because you know a lot of former people just because they are former something something they pretend to have the the, the quality to teach again I don't care I I can stay with the king and play with the king and stay what I am. He is the king, not me. I, I stay what I am. I, I'm what I am. And this is why I prefer or I like I'm in love of the United States. Because I I have the opportunity since nineteen years ago, 20, 12 years ago, no, twenty years ago right now, to meet special person can Teach me how to do my job, and sometimes steal something. Always give the the right credit. So every time I steal your exercise, thought I say I say, it's coming from one of my students in in United States. There's no sense to, to steal something without give the credit, and this is the, the my way of teaching and my my way of sharing. Uh, um, experience here, and this
2: one—it's kind of like drawing a network of, of all of the best from a variety of instructors. As you do that, you know, you, you learn what you can from all of the people that you get to encounter. And I think part of what he's talking about is just that he's had better experiences in the state finding instructors who want to share and learning from different people than than. Uh, as overseas in general um, and I mean we're fortunate here with a lot of a lot of really great instructors out there who have a lot to share and I think you can you can learn a lot from all of them um, and then it's I mean it's super cool from my end to hear you know stories about Colonel Applegate I mean, people that I never got a chance to train with I mean I started this uh, my career 22 years ago 23 years ago so I mean it was like right at the end of you know those legends but um, it's 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 an amazing thing to know that there are still things that they were training in those days that we can, we can use now and we use their attitude, their techniques, their, you know, all the contributions that they made to, to what we try to push forward to our students now. So um, I think, I think we all do better as we try to work together on this to develop as instructors, you know, collectively, instead of turning it into a competition in general, but that's, that's my approach (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think that that's one of the big values of going to to conferences like uh, ILF, the ILF annual training conference or the ILITA conference. Uh, uh, little Joe, like you were saying, your conversation uh, with the colonel—that kind of your first training occurred in the hallway, or or after after the class, or after yes. uh, you know after dinner or during dinner. That's kind of the big value. Of a lot of these training conferences, like the ILFE Annual Training Conference or the Ailida Conference, um, I agree. You know, I totally agree with you. you know, could could you share a little bit about your experience your experiences at Ailida? Because that's that ILFE and ILFE, I think, are the two conferences that I uh, attend on a regular basis, where I see some of the best instructors in the world that show up to learn from one another without ego. It's it's awesome. Thank you, Todd.
2: <laughs>
1: that's, that's that's the key. That's the key, and,
3: and, and as you're as you're addressing, it's it's not just a class itself, the formal classroom time, as you know, because you've been to many conferences too. It's when we sit in the hotel lobby, uh, me quaffing a root beer because I don't really drink, but you know, having the whatever adult beverage of your choice you want to have, be it a and w or a fine wine, um, and just sitting and just chewing the fat with people. And and that's when the little questions come up that didn't come up in their classroom. Hey, what do you do with somebody who walks in and sits in the back of the classroom before you even get on the range? And, and, you know, as they're sitting back there with their arms folded, they don't want to be there. They don't want to qualify. How do you handle that? And listening. And, and, you know, when you sit with these legends, when you sit with people like Dave Spaulding or Chris Serino, who are legends, modern day legends, when I had the ability to sit with Colonel Applegate, you know, once people would realize who he was, then more people would start to gather around. And then more people would give us feedback. Well, I had a student do that once, and this is what I said to them. And what happened? Well, they they joined the group. I'm like, oh. And they actually, you know, they went out there and shot and did well. Oh, and so it's that networking that helps because mm-hmm. as we sit here and there's four faces on the screen, we have combined well over 100 years of experience. But, and I don't mean any of us are old, it's just a comedy, yeah. right? I mean, 20, 40, so, oh, okay, 80 years experience. Um, but with that said, when you go to a conference like ILFE or ileta uh, or, or your local state conferences, even they're, they're excellent too. Because when you go to a state conference, what gets discussed is all the state rules and regulations, so especially if you're a new 40 hour wonder who just got out of a pistol instructor school, start with your state conferences, because that's where other instructors that have to deal with the same requirements that you do can help you. Oh, this is how I took care of that problem. This is how I took care of that problem. But back to sitting with legends, you know, um, I mean, so many people that that I had a chance uh, over the years to sit with at, at different firearms or use of force conferences and again, a big group would gather in to listen to what they'd say, and then they'd, they'd come up with an answer for you. Oh, I remember when that happened to me, and I did this, and it worked really good. And it it could be an experience that even Colonel Applegate didn't have, because again, his his core expertise was very limited to being a spy during World War II, or for a short period he protected the president, um, to working overseas and, and training OSS operators, and then Again, being basically a, a spy himself, if you will, keeping an eye on. The, the reason he went to Mexico in 47 was, uh, of course, after the war ended, uh, the largest Russian embassy in the world was in Mexico City, Mexico. So Applegate, and to quote him, God bless his all his boys were in Mexico to keep an eye on KGB agents.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
3: and they had some pretty good encounters. Um, hand stuff, gun to gun stuff, knife to knife stuff. And, you know, it's funny because I just said many, many times over the eight years that I knew him, he would call on a Saturday afternoon and we'd have a four-hour conversation about something. And uh, in one case, I remember he was headed off to Germany to train uh, Group 10, the mountain group, our special forces group that was at the time in Germany. And he said, you know, Joseph, um, when I finished training them, the GSG-9 has asked me to work with them a little bit on point shooting. And I said, are you going to do that, Colonel? And I'll never forget this. It's it's priceless to me. He said, I don't know. You know, they shot at me in the war.
2: <laughs> and I went,
3: That's a good point, Colonel. That's a good point. I, I don't know if I want to teach them how to shoot. They shot at me in the war. Um, so it, those are just, you know, again, just the, the good luck that I had. But, again, to get back to our, our core topic here, not for me to ramble on with Applegate stories that are irrelevant, but – Um, looked at the life he lived. If he got in a shooting, it was up close and personal because some KGB agent or some other enemy of our country approached him at close quarters as a spy and tried to stab him or tried to shoot him or whatever. That sounds to me like your typical street cop at a domestic or your typical street Mm -hmm. cop walking up on a car on a traffic stop. Whereas, you know, Polo made a comment earlier, we're we're seeing a lot of uh, sandbox veterans that are coming back and now they have their own shooting school um, and and I'm not knocking any of our veterans. Of course, they're all heroes yeah. and I, I love them to death. But uh, I took a class a few years back from a, a veteran. And um, later I decided to do a little research on him and found out that he'd never been in combat. He was basically a file clerk in the army. He had never seen combat. Did he go over there? Yes. Did he serve his country? Yes. Did he help keep my family safe? Yes. God bless him. But he, He'd never been in a shooting in his life, even over there. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: So now he's going to come back and open up a shooting school and say, look, I was in this military organization and now I'm going to teach you. And don't get me wrong. We have a lot of cops, too, that that have been there and done that. You know, um, it's a it's a human condition. People take their background and they try to modify it to promote themselves. And, you know, me personally, thank God I've never shot anybody. I've been Mm -hmm. at shootings. I've been shot at twice in my life. Um, But I've never shot anybody, and I hope I never have to. When the time comes, I just hope I don't let the colonel down. But uh, uh, I just hope it never comes. I'd rather not have to shoot anybody or stab anybody or kill anybody. Uh, I feel bad enough when i got to beat people up in the line of duty, and it's completely legal. So the last thing I want to do is have to shoot somebody. But, again, I tell my students right up front, if I'm teaching firearms, I tell them, look, I've never shot anybody. I've been shot at mm-hmm. both times. I didn't know where it was coming from and didn't have a chance to return fire. Um, but uh, I got to tell you, I'm not that guy who's going to tell you I've been in six or eight or 10 gun battles because I haven't. I, but I think we've this- all
1: had the opportunity to, to see the uh, Leoka studies and to, to draw some of our own conclusions on that. Uh, Alexandra and Paulo, if you were to, change what we're doing on the range. If you had your own, uh, you, you could fulfill whatever your heart's desire is into in training our new cops. What would that training kind of look like now?
2: Mm. Um, I'm going to go with real broad general, but again, doing the, Core concepts, the fundamentals, getting them going with their tactical their technical their technical skills on the range to get everybody up to a point where then we can maintain that and we can also branch off into that decision making training. So to combine those as quickly as we can, but I don't think you can do that unless you have that that core um, that core skill set really down pat to the point where, as we mentioned earlier, that. For example, I know I keep going we keep going back to qualifications, but those just become not a thing. It becomes just simple for everybody. If we can get to a point where your whole police department's like, yeah, not a thing. We're done ten minutes, and now we're in the training, I think we've accomplished something there um, with, with with getting people up to a standard where now we can actually do some do the more advanced, intermediate, advanced stuff we need to be doing. Um, to get them better at decision making and what we're going to do in those close encounters and and how quickly you need to react and recognizing the factors that are in front of you when they come up so that we can make the right decisions. All those things that you can't really do if you're still focusing on how do I do a mag change, right? Do you have anything to add? Okay. (laughs) He likes that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I kind of agree with you. I think that once we have uh, whittled down the the essential skills that what we need to start doing is is the uh, need to incorporate that deliberate dynamic movement early. Uh, once they have the skills to, to put it rounds where we want them to go and they don't have to be, you know, master class shooters. Uh, before we do this, they could sure. this, even a, a couple of hours into the range start getting them into the mindset of uh, unrooting their feet, deliberate dynamic movement uh, offline. Uh, I think that, that that kind of stuff is absolutely critical because uh, it carries over to the simulators. It carries over to the force on force training. Yeah. Uh, I think that you're, you're spot on with that. And, and it was, I kind of hear this same refrain from instructors all over the United States. So how come we're not doing it?
2: Right. Crickets. That's
3: that's an excellent point. So unfortunately, we aren't the decision makers somewhere. uh, And, you know, in Michigan, our our in-service course of fire has, well, first of all, we didn't have one. Um, I came on the job in 1977. And until about 15, maybe 18 years ago, you didn't have to do anything to maintain your license as a police officer Mm -hmm. in the state of Michigan. You literally had to do nothing. Now we have a 25 round course of fire. Um, and I know that sounds very inadequate. Um, I actually sat on the committee that um, updated our course of fire and we started at hundred rounds, but there were so many small agencies in Michigan. I mean, the typical police department in Michigan has six to eight officers. And, and a lot of those communities said, we can't afford to have them shoot a hundred rounds a year. And, you know, in, in my mind, I was thinking, then why are you a police department? Let the sheriff's department or the state police handle it. But these small communities, they love their fiefdoms Mm -hmm. and they wanted to be able to maintain their little tiny police department. And so we ended up with a 25 round of course of fire um, because somebody somewhere said, okay, we will count down to them. We'll we'll let them win. And, and we all know, this is a very distinguished group and I'm honored to be part of it, but we all know that we don't strengthen the weak by weakening the strong. You know, we, we need to make our people better, not worse. You know, Mm -hmm. again, I came from an agency of 160 officers where we shot four times a year when I originally worked for the sheriff's department. I'm at now full-time as a deputy from 1979 to 1985, and we shot every month. Um, There were probably 500 deputies back then. I've now gone back to that agency since I retired from my full-time job. We now have 1,400 deputies, and we still shoot every month. Um, We only qualify once a year. Those other 11 months... We are training. We are are teaching people to shoot at night with a flashlight in their hand. We're teaching them move and shoot. We're Mm -hmm. teaching them the tactics that go along with the technique of shooting. I think everybody on this panel agrees that movement is life. So they should be learning to move. You know, I think we all probably do the same thing. We initially teach them move, then shoot, and then eventually move and shoot. Um, to the best of their ability, because, again, movement is life. Um, and there are so many innovations just in our lifetimes. You know, when I when I came on the job in 77, a few told me that one day there'd be a flashlight on a, on a handgun or there would be a laser sight on a handgun or there would be a red dot sight on the handgun. Nobody would have believed that if the colonel was still around. I, I know that there were laser sights around when the colonel is teaching and, and he said you know that's all well and good, but if you have not mastered the use of the one-hand gun, then what do you need all the accessories for? Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of the problem is we have to get back to the basics. I mean, so many people that can't shoot the one-hand gun with one hand anymore, they're they're only accurate with both hands on the gun, and whether you're shoving your partner or an innocent person out of the way, or you've got a ticket book or a flashlight in your hand. Um, you you might be shooting that gun with one hand, and it might not be your dominant hand. So mm-hmm. why aren't we improving the skill sets of all of our people by making them shoot at least at close distances, out to 21 feet or so, with their offhand accurately? They, they should be able to. One of the best classes I ever went to, other than training with Colonel Rex, was an NRA where they told us, we don't care if you're right or left-handed, bring a holster for the other side and bring a second gun. You're going to be shooting with each hand. And every course of fire we ran, we had to run it with, I'm left-handed, but we had to run it left-handed and then right-handed and qualify. Um, and it was cool. And I was like, why aren't we doing this more? That's mm-hmm. genius. If you, you want to run, run, you
4: need, you need, you need to, to walk first. first.
3: Exactly. 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 And and I I think sometimes we forget those core critical skills, which is master the use of the handgun and and be able to use it as a one hand gun. I mean, in this day and age, I would guess a majority of the agencies in in the United States anyway, I don't know how it is in Italy or Canada, but we're back to nine millimeters now. Well, when, when I hear a police recruit at the academy say I'm recoil sensitive and we're shooting nine millimeters, I'm like, you're in the wrong profession. The fire academy is down the hall on the left. You pick the police academy. <laughs> That's the wrong academy. Because if you're recoil sensitive to a 9 millimeter, you pick the wrong profession.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, you should be pulling holes up a stairwell in a burning building. You should not be carrying a, a 9 millimeter handgun and complaining. Mm-hmm.
0: So, just That's my fault. Cool uh listen i should what i should do is i should leave these conversations more often <laughs>
2: so, todd's,
0: todd's gonna get a a, a a an offer in the mail to be a co-host mm-hmm. for a podcast he did a great um, job he did a great fantastic job. job fantastic job um no I, I appreciate you guys just continuing that conversation on i mean there's so many things that we can dive into right now um a few things that I do, I know we want to get into some of the human factors portion of this. Um, I know I, I just opened up on the on the chat here. I asked a question. Does anybody have any questions for a Q&A? Um, and one of the questions, and I'll bring it up right now because it actually, we can we can speak to it right now. I think it'll be relevant. Um, and I'll put it up on screen here. It says, how do we incorporate threat pattern analysis into firearms training? So, I mean... Uh, Joe, I'm gonna Joe. I'm gonna send that one to you. Um, when we talk threat pattern analysis, and we're gonna we're gonna start getting into some of the technical stuff here. We're we're an hour and fifty minutes in, so I want to start talking some of the science behind the training. Let's talk threat pattern analysis. Let's talk human factors, and and start where Where do officers and instructors have to start when we talk about this kind of stuff? Okay, so I guess tag. I'm it. You're
3: um, it. So. As I said earlier, not only has it been my good honor to train with the late Colonel Applegate, but long before I, I met Colonel Rex in 1990, I met Bruce Sittle. And and Bruce Sittle spearheaded human performance and, and understanding human science. Um, uh, initially, to those of us that knew him as a, a defensive tactics guy or a subject control guy, he spearheaded the, the, the scientific method of teaching physical skills to law enforcement officers, corrections officers, professions, security officers, professionals like that. Um, and and really, I, I was amazed. At that time, I was just getting involved in defensive tactics training. I wasn't really a firearms guy yet. And as I studied with, with Mr. Siddle, I, I, you know, I came to realize that he's not just basing this on, on some panda bear teaching him kung fu on TV or something. He, he's actually looking at the science of survival, the science of winning violent conflict, conflicts. And as I became a firearms instructor and uh, in, in various schools, uh, I've trained at all the major manufacturers. I've been to Fletzi down in Georgia to their two week instructor school, which is awesome. Uh, NRA, ILFE conferences. I, I've learned from some of the best. Um, with that said, what What Bruce was saying was it's not enough to just teach people how to punch holes in a piece of paper. We have to look at the other side of the equation. We have to look at the bad guy. And when we look at the fact that a high majority of law enforcement shootings are close-quarter spontaneous events and that many officers are killed with one or two headshots and never even draw their handgun then we have to look at the violent encounter and we have to determine how these things are happening. Um, So what that led Bruce down a road to was understanding threat pattern recognition. And what that means is what indicators are we getting from bad guys? We can call them red flags. We can call them danger cues. We can call them whatever we would like. Uh, You can see the Italian in me coming out, Um, but we (laughs) we can use any label we want um, but the fact is the the scientific method of doing this, which Colonel Applegate was just, when, when he and Bruce Siddle met, somebody introduced him, I'm not sure who, um, when that happened, Colonel Applegate was like, wow, your science validates my shooting system. This is just wonderful. And, and Bruce and, and the colonel got along great um, because they had a common interest, keeping good people alive, whoever they are, whatever their title is, whether it's citizen or or officer, uh, but to do that, we have to recognize patterns of movement. Now, we can start with macro movements, which is big body movements, and in some cases, not movements. Like in a lot of the assaults on officers, the bad guy already has the gun in their hand. Sometimes it's concealed under their, their jacket or in their hoodie pocket. Sometimes it's in their hand, hanging next to their leg, and the officer never looks down and sees it. And I know that might sound weird, but when you look at the numbers, you can find plenty of videos on YouTube and and other web locations that will show you that the gun is in their hand. So even if it's in their hand in their pocket, they've cut their draw time in half. They are moving quicker than we can get our gun out and shoot them. Action always beats reaction. So with that said, we've got to teach our officers how to move subtly out of the line of fire so that the bad guy is missing and the good guy isn't. And that's part of the science of survival. That's part of the science of teaching patterns of motion recognition. Um, and we, we are now moving forward. Bruce, Bruce never stops doing research. He's been doing research. Well, I, I did my research project in the early 90s, and that was on Hicks Law and Reaction Time. And choice reaction time, um, and he has funded or promoted probably a hundred studies since then, if not more. He is constantly not accepting the status quo of this is this is how it was. There's nothing we can do about it, and looking at it from the scientific viewpoint of there are things that we can do. We've gone from looking at macro movements to micro movements. We're now doing research into facial expressions, and Things like the corrugator muscles and how the eyebrows look when somebody's angry, when they're surprised, when they're scared, when they're ready to kill. And we're looking at micro movements and and not just of the face, but of the body, how the shoulders move. Uh, One of the things we see, especially in males, is that the chin will drop when they're getting ready to fight, including pulling a gun on you. Their chin will drop. It's that pugilistic response that we give when our brain says, "Okay, we're going to go. All right. So looking at patterns of movement, um, you know, for years, we've looked at how bad guys dress. We've looked, you know, uh, late last year, December 29th last year, we had a terrible shooting in a church in Texas and his clothing was just inappropriate for being in church. It was for the wrong weather and it wasn't really church like garb. He also showed up or the killer there showed up with a fake wig and a fake beard on. There were multiple red flags. There were patterns that we could see that would tell us something was going to go wrong, and then it went wrong. So threat pattern recognition is nothing more than instilling through training the pre-attentive system in the brain, we instill patterns of motion in our students' mind so that when it happens, it's not new to them. Through training, through training the pre-attentive portion of the brain, the pre-attentive system, pre right. Preconscious, if you will. We are teaching them what to look for. So their brain starts going red flag, red flag, red flag. Oh, this could be a dangerous guy. This could be a dangerous lady. I get a, ooh, I'm going to move right now. I'm going to get out of the way. And it's going to happen just like it did with Colonel Applegate back in his day. Toes to toes, nose to nose at very close range, because that's where a majority of the officers are killed in handgun encounters.
0: There's a lot of videos online, and I mean, for anybody who's watching this, you can Google, you know, officer-involved shooting, um, you know, spontaneous attack against officer. There's so many different things. I actually pulled one up. I queued one up here. So, And this is one I actually had seen previously, and I had spoke with uh, the guys, uh, you know, John Bostaine Chris Butler, and stuff like that, when we did our very first uh, roundtable on use of force. And so I want to I want to play this one for for the four of you, and I want to see, and it kind of goes to what uh, Joe was saying with it, you know things are spontaneous, things don't happen like they would 15, 20 feet away that you you get in your qualifications at the range. So um, this one was actually a, a a police shooting at a middle school. Um, so let me see if I can bring the screen up real quick here, uh, Chrome tab. And we'll share the audio. Make sure that works. All right, everybody can see
2: this. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's,
0: let's see if the uh, audio will come through. Have it? Has anybody here seen this video? I have. Yeah, I have. Mm-hmm. Yes. Are under arrest. All right. So before I go through it in slow motion there, I mean there's there's a lot to unpack in that what was that thirty seconds um, of video footage. So I mean who who wants to? I mean, for those of you who have seen this video, um, what what happened in this incident, and, and can you kind of walk through it a little bit from what you've seen, and and how that's applicable to to what we were just talking about? Well, I'll, I'll jump
3: off on that first. I, I've not talked to these officers. I I don't have all the details. We can only say that based on what we can see in this video, this is what we can ascertain, and that is, it appears to me. With my experience, to be an unwanted subject in a school. Uh, and they decide that they're going to physically make him leave the school. Uh, I can tell you that in the almost 30 years I spent in a suburb of Detroit, I, I did this, I can't tell you how many times. I, I probably I probably evicted somewhere between 20 and 40 people out of school buildings or other public buildings on duty. And when we'd ask him to leave and they wouldn't, we'd shove them outside the building, arrest them for trespassing, and take them on their way to jail. This is just one of those encounters. It just so happens this guy has a gun. They're at zero range. They're making contact with him when the gun comes out. They are already hands on. They have not controlled his hands yet, and I'm not being negative against the officers. I don't know if they were intending to arrest him or just shove him out of the building and make him leave but they weren't controlling his hands and that allowed him to get to a handgun. So now at zero distance, literally toes to toes, nose to nose, they've got a shoot around their hands. They're lucky enough to be able to get that gun away from their body, but rounds are going somewhere and let's just be grateful. They didn't go into people, but they could have been because he was firing that gun. Uh, they had no extreme close quarter skills, apparently to take that gun away from him or to shoot him um, because they end up wrestling him to the ground. Now, again, I'm not being critical there, but for the grace of God, go I, but I am being analytical. That's what the video shows us. Um, Why they didn't put a bullet in his brain or somewhere in his torso, or even better, a bullet into his hip structure to drop him,
1: um, I can't answer that. I think watching the video uh, when we're talking about threat pattern recognition, when when they first they're dealing with him in the uh just the entryway there at the school uh, watch his right hand is what looks like his right hand is inside of his coat pocket and he's very hesitant to to remove that right hand when we talk about threat pattern recognition if somebody's moving in a way or behaving in a way that is not natural these are things to, to look for watching this video. Uh, his left hand's up. He's talking with it. Uh, The left hand is acting in a normal manner, but watch the right side of his body. He's bladed. Uh, He's keeping his right side of his body farther away from the officers. Uh, His right hand is tight to his body as if he's supporting the weight of something, as if he's concealing something. And, These are threat patterns that we need to teach uh, uh, new officers and we need to go back and and continuously teach uh, more veteran officers to recognize this is a dangerous situation. And if an officer says, Hey, take your hand out of your pocket, take your hand out of your pocket to this guy. You really want to that guy to take his hand out of his pocket when you're not controlling it. You know, be careful what you ask for here. Uh, That threat pattern recognition is if something doesn't look right, think of a better way of, of, uh, taking care of the problem. Uh, but that right hand, that right side of his body is telling you that this guy is more than what he appears to be. I, I totally agree with that. And
3: when that's a great analysis, uh, and what we find is I, I, t- I totally agree with your statement. Don't t- tell him, show me your hands. Cause you're asking him to draw the gun. You're destroying your reaction time. Um, because when your brain sees that hand coming out of the pocket, and says, oh, that's what I told him to do, you're not going to react to it, other than he's complying with my verbal command. Uh, the agency I retired from several years ago, two officers responded to an unwanted ex-boyfriend in front of the house. It was the middle of summer. He had on bib overalls. He had his right hand in his pocket. As they walked up, uh, the, one officer said, let me see your hand. The other officer said, no, leave it there, and grabbed his hand in the pants pocket and immediately yelled gun, at which point the uh, the other officer, unfortunately for our bad guy, uh, who was a boxer, cold cocked him, knocked, on, knocked him out, dropped him like a rock. And in fact, if he had taken his hand out of his pocket, like the officer asked him to do, um, he would have got shot. And the other officer who made the judgment to no, don't take your hand out of your pocket, and grabbed his hand in the clothing and felt the gun saved the day. And, and so you're absolutely right. Um, Again, when we look at the statistics, most of the time, the bad guy already has the gun in their hand. And in this case, he did. Uh, And we we find these all over the web. Uh, Multiple encounters with law enforcement officers where whether their hands under their clothing or in a pants pocket or in this case, a jacket pocket, the gun's already in their hand. They've cut their draw stroke in half. And almost always the typical cop will say, let me see your hand. So you're spot on
2: that, that goes I think to another part of our training though that that even though we're incorporating more and more in the human factors end of things um, it's the decision after we've recognized that the threat pattern is occurring that I think needs more work in how we're training people so in this particular circumstance yeah they might have been if they picked up on what was in front of them, they need to know what their next step is, and that's, that's um, not programming a specific response for every situation, but knowing, hey, I need to act next, and these are my options. These are the things that I've rehearsed before, in you know whether through training, um, envisioning scenarios, however it's done, but making sure that we don't just stop at the threat recognition portion and that we take it the next step to, to be, okay, this is how we take care of this thing, and what Joe was just talking about is the, the officer who said, hey, keep your hands in your, in your pocket and held the hand there had a decision about how he was going to handle that situation. He knew what he was going to do, as opposed to the typical thing that a lot of our guys come up with, you know, like, oh, take your hands out of your pockets.
3: Yep. Uh, years ago, I, I was pretty new on the job and uh, they called us in on midnights and said, you're going to go with a bunch of task force people. They want a uniformed officer and they're going to arrest the guy I wanted for murder. Okay, so it just so happens I, I got out of four out of four uniformed officers from my agency, I got put with uh, two border patrol agents and because this guy was also uh, a uh, undocumented alien um, illegal immigrant i think they 're called but whatever um, so we get we find this guy walking through a parking lot of an apartment complex where we thought he was supposed to be. And I was super impressed. I'd never seen this before. The Border Patrol agents ordered him to stop. And, you know, his right hand was in his pocket. And I was about to say, take your hands out of your pocket, because that's the way I was trained. And one Border Patrol agent says, stop right there. Put your left hand on top of your head, palm up. So he basically had him do this. He said, now, very slowly, from your right pocket, just show me your baby finger. Now just show me your ring finger. Now just show me your social finger. Now show me your index finger. Now take the rest of your hand out of your pocket. And, of course, there was a, uh, a little 25 automatic down in his pocket, but he couldn't draw it because the agent made him show one finger at a time, which I thought was just awesome, and I've never forgotten that. Um, short of that, uh, you know, when people say, well, if we're not going to tell them to show us their, hand, their hands, what are we going to tell them to do? You're going to tell them to do that.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that, uh, you know, we got to be careful what we ask for of these folks. Um, if they're taking their hands out of their pocket, what's going to be in their hands? I think that there are multiple uh, scenarios that each of us can think about in our careers that we've encountered where that's been a problem. And we all know of, of other incidents where, uh, you know, that whole be careful what you wish for, take the hand out of, of your pocket uh, turned out badly in this case uh eugene police department's in oregon it's uh at an agency that's about two hours uh directly west uh over the mountains from from my old agency so we got a chance to to sit down and really take a look at this video i haven't spoken to the officers that were involved in in uh, that shooting uh, but you know from a from a, a tactical standpoint looking at what they were able to accomplish. Uh, and the lives that they saved, um, I you know what, kudos to them. Uh, sometimes, you know, we, we mistake being lucky for, for good tactics, uh, but I think that they understood that they had uh, something going on that wasn't quite right. They may not have been able to put their finger on it uh, at exactly that time, but they were ready to act, and, and even more than ready to act, they were willing uh, yeah. to act, when the time uh, came to do so. So good on those guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the biggest thing too, is we can never look back at these videos and say, hey, they did it right, they did it wrong. I mean, you're not that officer. You weren't in their head. You don't know what was going on. So I think that's an important part too. For anybody, any instructor who's watching this, like we can watch videos and, and do, like Joe said, an analytical overview of what happened in that incident. But to say somebody was right or wrong, I think is overstepping for sure. Um, one thing that, that I want to do real quickly here um, before we jump back into things is I wanted to anybody who's on this live stream right now, um, I mean, there's just a there's just a few of you. So if you want to send me an email to Adam at the breakdown.ca, right now, send me an email with your name. Um, and what I'm going to do is the uh, the first five of you that actually send me emails, I'm going to send you some shirts and patches. Uh, so I hope, uh, I hope you guys, uh, you know, can, uh, can wear that, enjoy it. I don't, I don't buy these things. Uh, you know, I went through about three different iterations of the shirt. So I wanted one that was really, really comfortable. Um, so I went ahead and did that. So I'm to send these off to you guys as a thank you to, to being part of this and, and sticking around with us this long. Um, so let's, I wanted to do that for you, but, um, one of the things here, so we, we kind of lost Joe there for a second. He's having some technical difficulties. Uh, he was, he was telling me. Um, before we get into some more things here, I know I want to start talking a little bit of the technical things when we talk about training, and you know we talk about these close encounters when we're as an officer, it's not it's not the fifteen to twenty feet away, it's it's right up close and personal. Personal a lot of the times. There's systems out there like uh, car like center axis relock, and things like that where officers are taught to fire from from different positions than we would traditionally teach. Is there a, is there a validity to teaching that to officers in in in-service training or should that be happening at the Academy level or should we be teaching it at all? What do you think?
1: I think there is some validity to, uh, I mean, you brought up the car system. I think there is some validity to it. I I think that some people overutilize it. I think that where it is, um, does have some validity. Is seated in a vehicle, uh, shooting out uh, out the, the side of the car uh, in some building clearing situations. I think that there's some some usefulness to it. Uh, I don't dismiss it completely out of hand. That being said, when it uh, when I've seen guys uh, on the range try to to make precise shots uh, at I don't mean long distance, I mean intermediate distance. You see a lot of guys struggle with it. Uh, You see a lot of guys at at distance definitely struggle with it. And you don't really see that type of system uh, work its way into uh, a lot of the more, I would say traditional, but that's not really the word I'm looking for, the kind of the more, uh, I, I guess, traditional academies or law enforcement training. There is some validity to it. I don't think that it's the, I don't think it's the answer. I think it's part of the equation. And where do we introduce it? I think we started introducing it just after, uh, we introduced movement, you know, dynamic, deliberate movement. If we're going to get them seated in a car and do some of these other, other responses, then, you know, or do some building search type training, then we can show them, uh, how the car system can, can, can apply based on, on context. Um, but uh, I think that's where it has to start.
2: I look at it, um, when you ask questions like that, I I look at it a little bit differently maybe than Todd does in the sense that um, he seems to be talking about like building techniques. And I like to keep options open for people who um, may not be built for a certain technique or may not, um, it just might not function with their physiology that well or there's modifications that they might need to make to be able to shoot better. So pulling, pulling information from all these different places and all the different systems um, could be helpful to some shooters. And other shooters are going to be like, no, it's just not for me. It doesn't work for me. So um, you might even introduce some of those things early on when you're teaching people how to shoot and, and figuring out that, hey, this, this just doesn't work well for this person, but this other way of doing things does. So, um, keeping your options open and keeping techniques, uh, a variety of techniques available, can be helpful when we're dealing with a variety of students in my world.
4: Uh, Maybe I agree with all, but uh, sometimes you need to follow our body. And there's a lot of people uh, better than me, like uh, Tony Blauer. And during your problematic situation your body reaction is not stay close but take away whatever you have in the front so i'm i'm not against teaching this kind of technique but i do not need to teach because if i'm in a you know uh, closed space of course and i cannot um extend the, the, my, my my arms i need to find a uh, intermediate position or something like that but we need to listen our body, I think, personally. So maybe, uh, again, when you have a, a sort of level, you can introduce something. Uh, you, normally, I'm, I don't want to say I'm, I'm against, but I prefer traditional, like Todd said. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the car
1: system. Uh, I, I do think that there is some context that it can be useful. Um, But I do agree with Alexandra that we need, we need to find solutions for our shooters. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a perfect story to illustrate that. Uh, About eight years ago, uh, my wife went through uh, uh, chemotherapy and she's great now. But when she was going through chemotherapy, she had a difficult time uh, maintaining her, her more normal modified isosceles stance. Uh, The gun got heavy. She wasn't able to, to control recoil as well. Uh, you know, she was fatigued from the, the chemotherapy, so her body wasn't uh, wasn't normal. Uh, at the end of her chemotherapy, uh, we went to uh, Thunder Ranch, and we're training with Clinton Heidi Smith, and over those three days on the range, she just couldn't uh, maintain a modified isosceles stance, so about halfway through the first day, she started shooting more Weaver, and that was a solution that allowed her to get through three days on the range uh, two weeks after stopping chemotherapy. And, you know, now she's got quite a bit of experience shooting Weaver, but she's back to shooting more of her modified isosceles type stance. But when it comes, when she, her, when she finds herself in a position now uh, where Weaver is kind of helpful, she's much better and, got a much higher skill level than she used to be. But it was a solution uh, for the time to get her to where she needed to be later on down the road. So, you know, uh, keeping keeping an open mind to, to other styles is really important because we're not trying to make clones of us. We're trying to find solutions that work for them.
0: You know, was, I was really – I was <laughs> – I was disappointed when when Luann wasn't to come on because I know one of the biggest things, and maybe Alexandra, maybe this is perfect for you to to jump in here, but I mean she had she has spent a career, and her whole her whole thing is the difference between teaching females firearms training and teaching males, um, yeah. and there's a huge difference, and when it comes to body size and composition and and athletic ability, I mean shooters come in all shapes and sizes, and. You know, even with defensive tactics, this one-size-fits-all thing doesn't work. And it doesn't work with defensive tactics training, and it doesn't work with shooting. Um, I know for me, myself, when, you know, the biggest thing for me learning when I was an instructor as a defensive tactics or martial arts instructor, the biggest lesson for me to learn was that, you know, if it works, just because it works for me, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for somebody else. And, you know, I'm six foot, 220 pounds, uh, (laughs) 230 if I'm being honest. And, you know, my uh, when I'm teaching somebody how to do a, some type of takedown or, you know, a hip toss or something or some type of t- control technique, it may work fine for me, but it's not going to work for that, that female officer who's mm-hmm. 120 pounds soaking wet and five foot nothing. So I think, I think those same comparisons can be drawn to firearms training. And, and why is there such a, a disparity in, in instructors that don't understand how to teach females how to shoot correctly?
2: Wow, that's a lot of different questions there, Adam. <laughs> sorry, sorry.
0: Yeah, on. What, what? When we talk about female firearm training, what is what is the one thing? If you could give one piece of advice to instructors out there when they're trying to teach a female how to shoot, what would it be, and why?
2: Um, I'm not going to say female specific with it, and and maybe my mindset's a little different about it, but. I For example, I I mean, I started this job 22 years ago. I started shooting when I was 16. I didn't expect different treatment on the range because I was female. So um, some of it is what the students come in with, and and we need to to be realistic about um, everybody's coming into the range to learn how to shoot, right? So whether they're male or female, you're going to find people of varying abilities and varying uh, physicalities and various varying mentalities about it, whether they are female or male. So, for example, again, I came in, I was enthusiastic. You're going to find a guy who comes in and he's like, hell no, I don't want to do this. So it really, to me, doesn't have as much to do with gender. Um, That being said, again, you need to pay some attention to. Um, like you were just talking about, you know, you're a six foot, you know, whatever guy and and I'm going to be smaller than you are. So how are firearms fitting people? We should be paying attention to that for everybody, right? It's, it's not just the women in the group. You're going to have guys who are smaller guys who are bigger. Um, so I, I'm going to say generally it's an attentiveness to your students and, um, not just assuming that because you've been through the 40 hour firearms instructor class is just enough to make you dangerous. That means you know exactly what you're talking about, um, be open to the feedback they're giving you. And I think one of the great ways to do that, uh, I, I love to have our firearms instructors uh, help teach our Citizens Police Academy because they get exposed to a group of people who have a totally different mindset than their officers do. And now they have to deal with things like arthritic hands or eyesight problems or things that cause them to think about, hey, how am I going to explain this to this person? How am I going to... Walked them through trigger control and sight alignment and sight picture. Um, So expanding your basis and expanding um, your approach to the variety of people and acknowledging that there is a variety of people that you're going to be training. Um, So generally, I I don't like to keep it a a gender specific issue. Hopefully, that answered your question.
0: Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to just like you know call females (laughs) in general. Yeah. Uh, I should know better. I do this really, okay. but what I'm, what that's what I meant was, I mean, there's, I mean, from a physiological standpoint, there mm-hmm. there is a discrepancy um, from athleticism from male to female, and that's Absolutely. what we're talking about, right? When it comes to muscle development, muscle growth, and strength, which mm-hmm. all play a factor into how the body will handle a recoil from a firearm. You know how your, you know what stances work best for certain body types. Um, I know, and, and that was another thing that I was really interested in asking, asking everybody here about was when we talk stances, I've seen, I've talked uh, to a lot of officers and they'll say, in our academy, it's weaver only or whatever, um, because that's what they expect them to shoot. Now, I mean, I come from a military background and we taught, we were taught isosceles shooting because that's where our body armor is facing. We want, we want the maximum amount of protection up front. And that was the way we were taught. Is there, should there be, um, you know, why are there still agencies that have, you know, one stance that they teach over another one?
2: I'm wondering what happens to all those people if they have to shoot like kneeling or under a car or something. They don't know how to do it because they can only shoot Weaver.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have, no, I have no idea. I have no idea.
1: You know, I I think that we get too wrapped up in the weeds in the, uh, there when we talk about stances. You know, I brought up stance... And I kind of regret it now, but I brought up stance okay. because I think that it kind of goes to showing uh, that we as instructors need to provide solutions for our shooters. And so I was talking specifically about my wife's experience uh, and being kind of flexible in evaluating different uh, uh, shooters needs. But when it comes to stance, man, stance is just a position that your body's in at the time you need to shoot. I really don't care about stance that much. Um you know, it's uh, when I, when we talk about shooting platform, it's it's more about uh, being aggressive uh, with the gun, aggressive behind the gun, uh, and how you interface with the gun uh, at the grip. I think that you know, it does. I don't care where your feet are. Uh, I don't care if your left foot forward, right foot forward. I don't care if you're in a. a, a you know, a deep stance, uh, you know, crystal shoots in a much deeper foot position than I do. I shoot much more squared up, uh, and it doesn't make any difference, uh, because basically from the hips up, uh, we're, we're kind of the same. And at the gun, how we, how we grip the gun with a high grip with a 360 degree coverage as high on the gun as possible. Um, and gripping the, the gun as tightly as you possibly can with the support hand, um, and doing those kinds of things is much more important than where your feet are. Uh, I mean, that's just kind of the bottom line.
0: Yeah. Joe, Joe, you just kind of joined us again. What we're talking about is um, do stances really matter? And from a physiological standpoint with different body types, what should, you know, are there certain things that instructors should be keeping in mind when they're instructing people or, or when an instructor trainer is teaching an instructor how to teach other types of shooters?
3: Yeah. Um, so we, obviously we have to deal with various body types when we're, when we're training people and we've got to make techniques fit the individual. Um, you know, over the years, I've gotten a new hip and had both my shoulders on, and what have you. And, and I can't do some of the things the way I used to do them. So a good instructor working with me would tell me um, that with your body, limitations with your body capabilities. This is the way you'll have to do this technique. So, you know, hopefully we don't have recruits in the academy that have restrictions like that. Although in this day and age, that's not impossible. Um, But we've got to make the technique fit them. Um, Obviously the better fitness factor we have with our students, the better they're going to be able to perform physical skills. But yeah, we've got to, you know, uh, Colonel Applegate in, in his body point position was very big on getting the tricep over the sternum in the body point. Uh, not everybody can do that, and it's not just because they're out of shape. You get some people that, that lift a lot, and they've got big arms and big pecs, and, and, and there's, they've got solid stomach muscles. They might not be able to get that arm centered on the torso, uh, on the sternum, the way Colonel Applegate liked it. Uh, so I teach those students to uniformed officers, to put their elbow in their holster and index their arm to their body because that's actually body indexed aimed fire. So, yeah, I would say that in some circumstances we have to be able to adjust physiologically to the student.
0: Whoa, that's a weird one right there. All right. Um, Before before we kind of jump into anything else, is there anything that we've touched on so far that anybody has any more points on or, or wants to speak to when it comes to, developing trainers or developing instructors when it comes to shooting?
2: Um, the, the only thing I wanted to mention quickly is I know that we might have some instructors out there who are like, Hey, I've got to spend my own money. What things should I choose to do if I'm going to, if I'm going to put my money down somewhere to go for extra training. And I think Todd kind of mentioned earlier, I just wanted to underscore the point that the collective conferences where we go and meet other instructors are a great place to start out instead of uh, the crap shoot of, you know, maybe take a classroom or, somebody found online for 40 hours and not really knowing who they are and what they're about. Um, Bank for your buck wise, getting to a place where you can meet a whole bunch of people and be in classes with them and see how they work and then have the opportunity to teach yourself later on uh, to come back and and teach as an instructor and you grow a whole lot that way. um, That's a really good place to start. If we have folks out there who are the 40 hour people looking to do more.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, one thing before we kind of jump on to Todd, what I just, what I just asked everybody was if there was anything kind of what we've spoken to already when it comes to developing instructors and trainers or types of things that they should be knowing, is there anything else that you want to kind of add to that? You
1: know, I, I just want to go back to ongoing continuing education. I think it's the single most important thing that we do uh, that, you you know, getting that instructor certification isn't the end of the game. It's just the beginning. Uh, start reading books. Start uh, listening to podcasts. Start learning more about the learning process. Uh, start learning about the, the history of shooting and where we came from. And are we mired in the same spot or are we moving forward? Uh, I think those kinds of studies is, is absolutely critical for, for a firearms instructor.
3: You know, if I can relate that background to my martial arts background i started studying martial arts in 1970 and if i had walked into the school that i trained at for many many years or 18 years uh, anyway uh, if i had walked in and the instructor told me yeah i just completed a 40-hour course now i'm a martial (laughs) arts master and i'm going to teach you everything i have mastered in 40 hours i obviously would have walked out the door and not stuck around um and yet it it, the i I hate to say it maybe Canada's the same way, maybe Italy's the same way, um, but in, in law enforcement training, you can go through a 40-hour school, and all of a sudden, you're gifted enough to be able to teach other people stuff, and, and Tad's right, it's, not, it's continuous, ongoing, quality
1: training. That's mm-hmm. what it takes.
0: Uh, yeah, I really wish Brandon would have had a chance to jump on with us. He, so I just actually did a, a full like two-hour interview with him for the podcast, and one of the things that came up in conversation was that ongoing training. And I mean, to, to speak exactly to your point there, Joe, what I equated it to was my martial arts experience. And when you become a black belt, I mean, if you, if you're in any type of legitimate school, any type of legitimate lineage, you get that black belt. That's the beginning of your journey. That's the start of it. It's everything up to there is fundamentals. And, and from the point where you become that black belt, become that instructor, that's when your learning has to start and that's when you have to kick it into high gear. Um, And I think that's important for firearms training. I think it's important for defensive tactics training or any, any trainer, teacher, instructor. I mean, resting on your laurels is a very quick way to, to be left behind in the dust. So um, I think that's, I think that's an awesome place to leave that. So one of the things that I did want to bring up, and this was something, and I I promised Chris, I was going to mention this because you had mentioned uh, Leoka earlier. And he he had brought this up, so I wanted to speak to it a little bit. This is this is what he wrote me. Um, so he said this was from Leoka 2018, and uh, he said 71 percent of officers were shot in the head or neck. Almost 60 percent did not return fire. He said, "Let's start with the start uh, the startling reality and understanding what is going wrong with officer training." So, <clears throat> attacks at close range evolve within 250 milliseconds. The first critical survival response for officers is to move their head offline, then their torso, then move their feet, and then draw and get busy with their gun. But almost the exact opposite is happening in range training, and therefore training scars are instilling exactly the wrong recognition, prime decision-making. Until firearms trainers start training officers for the reality of the speed and proximity of the attack, cops will keep getting shot in the head. We need to we need a fundamental paradigm shift in firearms training based on human factors science. So essentially what he's saying is we need to start training officers to move off the line first before draw first. I mean, so does anybody want to kind of start with how they're implementing that with their training?
1: I would say first off, it, it's not moving offline first. It's it's recognizing the threat sooner and faster and first uh, it goes kind of back to that threat pattern recognition uh, and then we start talking about that dynamic and deliberate movement and, and if we're not incorporating that threat assessment part of it the the recognizing the threat cues that that officers are missing out on the street that officers have have sacrificed their lives uh, to teach us today then we're missing we're missing this whole thing completely. Uh, we could we could talk about deliberate dynamic movement. We could talk about, uh, you know, when to get the gun out. We can talk about when the gunfight actually starts and, and if it's a gunfight. Uh, but if we're not recognizing those threat cues, first and foremost, we're we're behind the game. I,
3: I totally agree with that. And if we go back to the uh, shooting that we just looked at in the school, um, I, I agree with the statement if the officer's reacting to the bad guy. But if we look at that shooting, we just looked at in the school. And if we look at the uh, shooting from Noble, Oklahoma, what, one or two years ago now where the officer stops the, the biker, and uh, I believe it might even be a sergeant that stops this biker. And in the Noble shooting, same as the school shooting we just watched, although the bad guy goes for his gun in the Noble shooting, the sergeant's so close that he shoves the gun away. He's close enough to touch the gun and push it away from him so he can't be shot with it. And then he shoots the bad guy and drops him. In the shooting, we just all watched uh, the school shooting. If he had simply grabbed his wrist so he couldn't pull it out of his coat pocket and then felt down, slid down his hand and felt the gun, he would have known there was a gun in his hand. And again, we're not reacting to the bad guy. We're being proactive, not reactive. Uh, and so Todd, he's spot on again. If we get ahead of the danger cues and we take action first, we're making the bad guy react to us instead of us reacting to the bad guy. We're actually actually engineering time. We're creating time in the officer's mind because they're taking action first.
0: Awesome. Thanks to technology. I'm able to share this mm-hmm. with. Um, so this is this is the one that you were speaking about there, Joseph, yes. right? Yep. That's the one. Okay, so I'll play this and then and then if you wanna if you, you can speak to it if you'd like. Both
2: your hands. I see both your hands.
0: Sorry. No, I'm sorry, this is the We're wrong one. There's a wrong one? Yeah.
3: Oh. that's that's not the shooting. This what? shooting will be uh, it'll be in front of a house, house um
0: and it'll be a motorcyclist who's talking to the uh, surgeon. Okay, let me find it. You guys keep going, I'm gonna I'll find this one for you. Uh okay. Alexandra or Paula, what are your what are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, my thoughts go back to what what I was talking about earlier, and'm I'm, I'm still not sure as collectively as instructors is something we need to think about. how how do we get better at teaching the combination of recognizing the danger cues with what we're doing on the range? Um, what what I don't like seeing happen, is the whole concept of, oh, move off the X, becoming like the whole, oh, oh, scan behind you thing, where people aren't actually even looking for a threat. It's just something they do after they shoot. And um, we need to figure out a better way to instill that in our people. I I think some of it goes to things like the scenario-based training, where you can watch um, things happening on the screen in front of you, be able to point out, look, this is a danger cue, this is a danger cue, this is what I would do about it. Um, but collectively coming up, I, I don't have all the answers here, just a bunch more questions about the best ways to implement that in our, in our training so that we're not simply creating another thing we do on the range, but it doesn't have good meaning in our students' brains, if that makes sense.
3: Oh, that totally makes sense. I totally agree with you. We yeah. we, we teach them to automatically do something that might not even be appropriate for the arena that they're in at the mm-hmm. time.
1: That's why it has to be deliberate. You know, we can't we can't create uh, what amounts to a conditioned response that every single time I draw, I'm moving left or I'm moving right or every time I'm reloading, I'm moving. You know, okay, what if you're behind cover? Well, I'm not going to move out from cover when I reload. Really? If you if, yeah. if it's your conditioned response, you might. Right. You I- can also create
4: a bad scar mm-hmm. because in a real situation, I'd never be in a, in a gunfight, thank God. But even uh, take your, your, um, your body off the X for 30, uh, I, I half a meters or half a yard in a good, if in front of you, the bad guys can shoot 30 centimeters, don't make the difference.
2: M- you know what I mean? You, you, you don't like have to. The bad guy is moving his firearm a lot that much to yeah. be able to to capture you as you think you're moving far enough off the it, axe. It's not a
4: solution, the movement.
2: And sometimes
4: when you, you're not free, I suppose. I I, I, I practiced shotokan karate back in, I, I, I did for 26 years. And the first time I, I, I fight in a comité, we don't wear any protection. When we start wearing protection, we, our movement was more slow. I don't know how to explain because we know sometimes can hurt, but it's different. And the same is with, in reality. I don't want to add more time to my draw because I, need to, I want to move. Because naturally, my body can help me in, in, a, in a stress situation or I hope. With the good training, this happen.
2: And I think part of the good training is recognizing those threat cues and being able to pick up on those, so that your natural reactions plus that quick draw are going to are going to work together to help you in those situations. If that makes sense, instead of totally creating, yeah, instead of continuing to create this idea that okay, now we're going to add another step into. <laughs> The, the way we, we present our guns on target because, well, some studies showed us, I shouldn't say study, but so, some incidents showed us that maybe this is a solution. And it's it's a strange thing I think we do trying to apply kind of Band-Aids to keep our people safe as opposed to addressing the true physiological nature of what we do and all of the other things that go into an encounter like this, which is why the human factor stuff is so important to be looking at that research and looking at those ideas and saying, okay, what could we expect and how can we work within, within the things that naturally we're going to do as as humans.
1: And I think that that's where the movement, uh, you know, movement for movement's sake is just wasted time and wasted energy. Uh, It has to be deliberate. It has to have purpose, right? Uh, Jeff Hall, uh, who is a retired Alaska state trooper. Mm -hmm. uh, He's also uh, uh, the the modern founder of hojutsu, the modern art, the martial art of the gun. Uh, but he used to do a program, and it was called Finish the Fight. And what he did was he showed videos of officers that were doing something other than fighting. Uh, they were trying to communicate uh, mm-hmm. on the radio. They were trying to, to maneuver when they should have been fighting. They were trying to do something other than fight. And sometimes there's a time to move sometimes there's a time to communicate sometimes there's a time to fight and we can't confuse those things and and as part of our training process i think that as instructors we have the obligation to help our students understand Mm -hmm. when it's time to communicate when it's time to move when it's time to to fight and what's appropriate for for whatever context we're putting them in movement for movement's sake is is a waste of time and energy um it it needs to be deliberate has to have purpose You know, we do a drill out on the range where, you know, I'll be uh, and I think Alexandra, I think that you've seen this uh, where I'll say uh, I'm, you know, three yards away from you. And I say, you know, put, go ahead and stick your finger out and put it on my chest and, you know, follow me on the range. And I'll just run back and forth and go, is it hard to follow me with your gun finger? You're like, no. Then why are we teaching guys to. To take a step every single time they're drawing. Why are we teaching folks on the range to, that every time they reload, to, to that they got to move? Right? It, that one step at that distance isn't doing anybody any favor. And, and you start to increase distance, and it do,
4: it's even less effective. It even at twenty yards, doesn't deliberate. change. Even yeah. at twenty yards, if you are a good shooter at twenty yards, doesn't change. Doesn't change. Right? So why? It's got to be deliberate
3: years ago I was teaching out in Utah at that advanced law enforcement training camp. And I had, um, I was given a lecture on human performance and, uh, you know, teaching, teaching things unnecessarily. And one of the points I brought up is a lot of times when firearms instructors teach you to reload on the range, or they tell you to maintain a hot range. If, um, if you run out of rounds, if I tell you to give me four rounds fire and you get through two rounds and your gun slide locks to the rear, for years, what we taught was reload the gun and fire the next two rounds. And uh, I said, that's you. The term I use when I teach is you don't owe me any rounds. If you get to a point in a course of fire where you need to reload, don't just come up and automatically start shooting after your reload, because I don't want you automatically shooting when you shouldn't. So I'm, I'm giving this lecture and some of the guys under the tent because we taught at an outdoor range. They were like, I don't agree with that. I think you should make them, I think they owe you those rounds. I said, I I disagree. Well, one of the guys in the front row raises his hand and says, I agree with you, little Joe, because in the middle of a shootout, he was on a bank robbery detail in New Jersey. And in the middle of a shootout, he was hiding behind his engine block. The bad guys were shooting at him. He reloaded his gun and automatically put two rounds into the front tire. Just because his brain said, I'm reloading, I have to shoot. And that's the kind of automatic response that we don't want to be an automatic response.
2: So I agree.
3: Sometimes not moving could save your life. The problem is in the fraction of a second, because if we're once again reacting to the bad guy in a fraction of a second, it's going to be tough to determine, should I move or shouldn't I? Um, And and that's a decision-making process. That's tough. Some things do need to be automatic. um, But you know, like automatically reloading when your gun is empty without thinking about it. Um, but that's a tough one, and that calls for movement time, basically a, a time movement study. And and organizations like like PPCT have done those for years. But any any department, any individual could do a time motion study and ask themselves what makes sense here. What when we look at the big numbers what's going to give us the best answer? Because again, we've got to come up with some kind of solution. Um, it, but the only way to do that is through valid research, run, run 30, 40, a hundred people through the same scenario and see what works the best.
2: I, I think though, is we're getting less and less connected with people right now, and this is something that, I mean, everybody bashes on the millennials for a variety of reasons that I, some of them are very unjustified, but, they're, they're all so connected through computers and not face-to-face that I think it's going to be more helpful for our departments to, to really hammer this human, human factor stuff home and to really be looking more at how we train our people to recognize these person-on-person cues because they're just not even getting that interaction with, with other people around them. I mean, it's different. It's, it's you know strange to, to do this stuff even on video cameras. Um, how are you going to recognize when you have somebody in front of you who's getting ready to beat the snot out of you and they can't pick up on the cues because they've just never seen them before.
1: Right. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot to that. I mean, we're, man, we're several decades into the fighting never solves anything uh, thing, which we all know is total bullshit. Uh, <laughs> fight, throughout history, fighting <laughs> has solved everything. It, it may not be the, uh, you know, the, the, Ideal way to solve a lot of problems, but it solves
2: problems, right? And not pretty, but it works.
1: (laughs) It does. And, but, you know, growing up fighting or, or, um, you know, participating in martial arts or, or whatever the case may be, a lot of us, that's where we got our first uh, introduction to threat cues, right? Mm -hmm. And nowadays, we're not seeing as many people that have that ability to recognize those threat cues. So, uh, utilizing technologies to show them. Uh, those pre-threat indicators, those pre-attack indicators uh, to get them to understand these are things you need to look for because these are the uh, these are things that are going to, to uh, lead to something bad happening. And if you can get ahead of it, uh, that's the way to do it, because, I mean, quite frankly, uh, a lot of our new cops going and I don't mean millennials. I'm going I'm talking we're several decades into the fighting never yeah. solves anything bullshit. Um, it's, it's costing our, our uh, police officers uh, lives and injuries because they're not picking up on those threat cues. And yeah. Yeah. I think it's absolutely critical information that we, we owe it to them to, to train them on.
3: You know, I, I, I totally agree that we're bashing millennials. I know it's another topic. I'll keep it short. But my daughter's a millennial. She's a cop and a trainer. Um, my nephew's a millennial, he's got a master's in psychology and, and therapy, and he works, uh, down South in, in a Southern state in a institution for juvenile criminals. And he puts his hands on kids every day, more than the typical cop does. And they're both millennial millennials, but they're doing the job that has to be done. Uh, so I, I agree. Millennial bashings, just not, it's just not the right thing to do.
0: no. Joe I got your screen here do you want me to add that up here and you can speak to whatever you want to show here yeah
3: uh, let's go with the noble
0: Oklahoma shooting sure yeah well I got I got it up here so you gotta just pick which what you want to show here
3: oh I can do it yep all right let's see oh I'm trying that's all right uh, uh, uh. Oh, well, I got my mouse on it, but it's not opening it.
0: Okay. All right. I'll let you. I'll let you work on it on your end. Once you get it up and queued up, we'll uh, we can jump into it. Um, speaking of of videos and things, I know this is kind of off topic, but I wanted to. I want uh, what two things I want to talk about was a little bit of technique when we're talking about training because I know I know this comes up a lot in your training. Um, this is a video that actually Todd sent me that's on YouTube, um, and we're talking about trigger slap. Um, and so Todd, maybe while uh, while Joe gets that sorted out, do you want to maybe I'll, I'm going to put this video up and we can talk a little about the very one. I know we're kind of going really, really, really specific on something, but I think it's something important that will be beneficial to to especially junior instructors and instructors that are watching this.
1: Cool, sounds good.
0: Okay. So, so when
1: we talk about. Uh, A lot of especially new instructors, they, you know, one of the things that they'll always tell their shooters, hey, you're slapping the trigger front sight. Focus on the front sight. You're slapping the trigger, slapping the trigger. Great. Uh, It doesn't do anybody any good because they don't really understand what the the shooter doesn't understand what they're doing. The instructor is misdiagnosing. Quite frankly, in order to develop combative speed and accuracy, it is impossible for shooters not to slap the trigger at least to some degree, the better shooters are going to have less trigger slap, but we're all going to be doing. it. And here's a, here's a video of a, of a really good shooter. And she's slapping the crap out of the trigger. And as you play this video, uh, you'll see that uh, when she takes, when she first starts, she's at 10 yards, she's shooting on steel. So if there's audio there, you'll be able to hear it too. Uh, but when she first starts shooting, She indexes her finger on the trigger. She takes up the slack right up to the pressure wall, and then she starts to press through. As the video goes on and is in slow motion, you can see that her finger between shots is coming completely forward, uh, not just to trigger reset, but it's coming completely forward and occasionally losing contact with the trigger, right? She's relaxing her trigger finger. Uh, We all know that relaxed muscles move quicker and smoother than tense muscles. So she's uh, relaxing that trigger finger. She uh, comes back into contact with the trigger and is just pressing right through the slack and right through the uh, pressure wall again. And this is a really good shooter. The But she is slapping the trigger. A lot of instructors would come up to her and say, uh, hey, you're doing a good job. I don't see anything wrong. Right. Until they saw this in slow motion and then they say, hey, you're slapping the trigger. What the video doesn't show is that downrange, all of her shots are hitting at 10 yards or hitting an 8-inch piece of steel dead center every shot, right? The best shooters in the world slap the triggers. Us mere mortals, we slap the trigger. What we want to try to do is to keep that trigger slap from changing the orientation of the muzzle to the uh, intended target area. So we don't want the slap of the trigger to necessarily mess with our ability to make good hits here. So here it is in slow motion. You can see her take the slack up, and then she presses through. Then all of a sudden, finger comes off the trigger. She presses straight through. And these are very quick shots, and she's making good hits each and every shot, right? But
0: she is slapping the trigger. Yeah, we'll play one more time here so everybody can okay. see that. So here's real speed.
1: Okay, kind of, I got a little uh, change between the video and the audio on that. So watch her finger come completely off the trigger between shots, shot that she's pressing straight through. Even the world's best shooters are going to slap the trigger. The, the key for us as instructors is to minimize the, the amount of trigger slap and to get the shooter to stabilize the gun as much as possible so that the gun stays on target from shot to shot to shot.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Looks like we uh, lost our video there for a second. Oh, there they are. They're back. Um, does, anybody have any, does anybody want to speak to to the trigger slap in the video we just watched before we watched Joe's video here?
3: Well, just real quick, we, we can make technical errors, whether we're talking driving, whether we're talking shooting a gun, a handgun, a long gun, a rifle shotgun. We can make little physical mistakes in our movement time, but if the overall quality of our technique makes up for those mistakes – then it's okay.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's what you see in this video is that, uh, you know, her grip on the gun is, is exceptional. Uh, that gun is returning right back to her point of aim time and time and time again, uh, not because of where her feet are, but because of, of how she's interfaced with the gun. High grip on the gun, there's no gaps in her grip, and she's got a phenomenal grip. Phenomenal grip strength. So the gun comes back to the same point of aim each and every time, even though she's slapping the trigger and she's not slapping the trigger, you know, super bad. Uh, you know, like a, uh, she's, she's just not, she, she, there is trigger slap there, but it's not horrible, but the trigger slap is hidden because of her strong shooting platform, uh, and her grip on the gun.
0: Yeah. Cool. All right. So so Joe, we got your uh, we got your video here. This will be the one. Um so be it. You can you can do you want us to do I that full screen or do you want it just like this? No, that should be fine.
3: Okay. So this is a traffic stop on a biker. The biker's going to walk away. The sergeant's going to follow him. The biker's going to reach into his coat. Maybe he's telling the sergeant he's getting his ID. Maybe he isn't whatever it is. He's going to produce a gun. And in this case, The sergeant's going to be so close that he's going to knock that gun away before he returns fire. Had he automatically stepped away and not shoved that gun out of the way, he would have ended up being shot by that gun. this sergeant did an awesome job. He only kept the gun from pointing at him and dropped the bad guy, but he didn't shoot the innocent civilian that ran up behind him.
1: Yeah. I love this video because it shows you that, uh, initially, even though the gun, the guys, the threat here is drawing the gun. Initially that's not a gunfight. Uh, that, that is a, a, uh, empty hand technique, uh, initially, and then it turns into a gunfight.
4: Yep. Okay. Can you say something? Think about the movement or bring out the axe. The agent, the the, the sergeant, naturally step back and watch his back, and he moved. He he, he was locked free after a bad situation. So how I can teach that movement? At the range, it's impossible. You're right,
3: and and here's here's exactly you know what I mean. Exactly, this is a perfect example of why we need to combine combative skills, and and why this this would not be a live fire exercise in the range, but this would be a good. Um, I wouldn't even use munitions at this range. I'd use a blue gun, um, but I'm not sure I'd want to be shooting munitions or or any. High-speed marking, pain marking cartridge at contact distance, just for the safety factor.
4: And again, the sergeant with the, his uh, the left arms, he <laughs> push away. It don't he don't close. In a bad situ, in a s situation, your body try to push away something. And this is the the best example about what I try to explain before. I think, but maybe all of you. Uh, understand what what i what, what is my my point and this is the perfect example of what i'm saying and I,
3: I think your point was uh Polo, that that we can't just teach a specific movement all the time because it's not going to work mm-hmm. yeah exactly and you're spot
2: on right. and um, and to use the body's natural reactions because yes. he's saying the natural startle response is that you're going to push out and you're going to get away yep. um, and push how danger, do we but, yep. push danger away Yep, yep.
0: So here's a question for you. I've seen training and I've seen video footage, and that's probably the problem is somebody recorded it and now we think that people do it, um, where we talk about that initial startle response, um, whether you know it's it's that outside 90, talking about the spear system or any other type of defensive tactic system to, to mitigate that initial um, attack or assault. I've seen it where at a range, somebody has had one of the Bob targets set up um, so if you're all familiar with the Bob XL type targets by century um, and what they would do is they have the, the dummy completely clothed up. The officers no more than a foot away and on the range, their movement is from hand center. It's they come out and draw and actually fire directly into the dummy, um, which would more simulate the the video that we just saw. Has anybody incorporated that? And if you haven't, why haven't you? Yeah,
1: we um, incorporate it all the time. I've got a whole bunch of targets right up there um, that we uh, that we use for that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I think that those, the 3D type targets are perfect for those kinds of things. Uh, being able to incorporate those empty hand techniques with live fire is absolutely possible. You do have limitations. Uh, you can't be moving 360 degrees unless, uh, you know, if you have other people out on the range. But but utilizing those types of things uh to incorporate strikes with a draw is absolutely impos- or absolutely possible and is critical to, to our firearms training programs.
4: Uh, it's difficult for me uh, using that kind of uh, target because it's, it's, it's difficult to find in Italy. But when I when I can, I and with some I don't want to call it advanced training, but sort of. I prefer usually instead of step back, back close the distance. Uh, I I do Krav Maga for (laughs) since years ago, five or eight, something like that. (laughs) And the concept of close the distance is very important, and uh, it's you can do only with something like dummy man. Uh, Our law in Italy have some difficult also with that. Uh, because I'm not a uh, enforcement anymore. So, as a civilian, you can. Mm. But uh, like we said, mixing mixed things like uh, defensive tactics, shooting range, single—it's—it's it's the goal. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think that talks to a lot. I mean, a lot of what's coming up in every single one of these roundtables we do is interleaving training. Um, and and learning, and that goes back to the instructor development, is understanding what training is from an academic standpoint and understanding the different dynamics, training modalities, learning methodologies, and stuff like that of your students. Is there anything to that point that that any of you want to speak to kind of before we we get to the end here? Anybody? No, nobody. Nobody wants to talk about interleave training and firearms tactics. Okay, that's all. Uh, um, go ahead, Joe.
3: Well, I, I, again, if we look at human performance, I think what we have to do uh, is look at human capabilities and limitations. We we have to look at what our students are capable of doing, and when I say students, we have to look at what the average officer can do. You know, we had a discussion a few minutes ago about martial artists, and of course, martial artists spend Many of them, true martial artists, spend a lifetime training, uh, and and they never stop training. But that's not our typical our typical audience or officer. Uh, again, when, whenever we do training, we have to look at the audience. We have to we have to gear our training around not only a task analysis of what they do, but what their capabilities are. And and we can't be asking the average human being do stuff that only highly trained. Um, and by highly trained, I mean hours every day. Uh, special units, special operators do. We have to look at the typical cop in their typical physical condition and make sure that our, our training meets their capabilities. Um, so it's it's looking at the bad guy's performance, what they're capable of doing, and what our officer is capable of doing. And again, that's that's the typical officer, the normal everyday cop.
2: I, I don't think that means that we don't set out um, expectations for them or challenges for them. Not at all. I'm not, yeah. Right. Right. I'm, I'm not implying that Joe said that it's just um, making sure that our audience understands that it's, it's about recognizing who you're dealing with and then pushing them to the next level, but making sure that for example, if, if all of your experiences is SWAT, understanding that maybe there's other people out there that don't operate the same way that you do so that you, you can get people to that level, you know, encourage them and motivate them to get there.
0: Yep. Awesome. Um, Joe has one more video that he brought up here for us to watch. I know a few of you maybe have to take off right away. Um, are, do you guys have a second to watch the video and speak to it or, or do you want to kind of do your, your goodbyes right now? Well, I got time. Yeah, Go we ahead. can check it out. All right. It's a fifth. But huh. 50-second video. So it's is- too long, Joe. It's too long.
3: <laughs> it's, uh, this is Napa Valley, California, and huh. this is a deputy investigating a suspicious subject who also, again, happens to be an illegal immigrant who's armed. Uh, it's not a true traffic stop. You'll notice that her squad car, her scout car is in front of him uh, and off to her right. Uh, it's at night, and um, she's going to talk to him. Hi.
2: Wait right there don't move okay roll it down roll down the window roll down the
3: shot fired now this one's interesting in that in this case she can't shove that gun out of the way she can't get to it and in her case movement is life she, she steps at a 45 degree angle to the rear um stepping out of the line of fire then circles the car Uh, very calm. Uh, She is just a champion. She's calm on the radio. She's not, I I had cops that made routine traffic stops that screamed in the radio more than she is right now. And she just had somebody try to kill her. She's calm. She shots fired, shots fired. She comes around. She engages the bad guy. You can hear him start the engine. You can hear him yelling, but she's not going to let this end well for him. And she doesn't, she does her job and she does it well. When it comes to human performance and and human factors engineering or ergonomics, it just so happens that her tubular flashlight is still in her hand. But if she was in total darkness, you notice that to get that two-handed grip on the gun, because that's what she's been trained to do, so that's what she wants to do, she inadvertently illuminates herself with her own flashlight. So we can look at human performance here, but we can also look at ergonomics or human factors engineering here and, and realize that there sometimes we need to build a better mousetrap to, to make our officers safer.
1: Yeah. I think that watching this video and I've seen this video a couple of different times uh, and I always come away with the impression that uh, she's a hero. Uh, she did exactly what we wanted all of our officers to do. Uh, when, when, Uh, she was faced with a deadly threat. She was, uh, she was willing. uh, She was calm. She kept her wits about her, uh, at the time. And she was, uh, her performance was out of this world. Well, what can we learn from this? We kind of go back to those, uh, recognizing those pre-attack indicators. If you watch on her first on her passenger side approach, what's he doing? What's he hiding? Uh, Is his movements normal? Are they natural? Is he looking for something and retrieving something? These types of things are are all uh, threat cues or uh, threat record things that we need to train our people to to recognize uh, because they're there. Uh, Her response to them after she missed them was phenomenal and uh, was was heroic. Uh, But I think that we can always look at what did she miss? So that we can learn from that, because if I'm in the same situation uh, tomorrow, uh, maybe I want to I want to be able to recognize those and learn from her shooting. And she did a great job, but look at the beginning of the video; she did miss some threat keys. Not not uh, bad mouthing her because she's she did phenomenal, but we can learn we can take away something from this video.
3: And. and and missing those threat cues is part of being a human being. It's part of the Absolutely. human
4: being. Yep. And, uh, she, uh, I sweat only watching the video. So
0: I, <laughs> I was going to say the same thing, Matt. I get, I get, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen that video personally myself. So I'm every time I see one of those, I get like nervous. I'm like, I, I don't know what's going to happen.
4: So yeah, I know. I, I know. Take, I take a deep breath before I start because I cannot breathe. But, uh, we, uh, we learn how our body work, and I don't know if it's clear for me what uh, little Joe says. But the uh, lights in their hands teach how our body works. As soon as I am in a bad situation, what I have, I close.
2: Exactly. And this
4: happened, and I and this happened with is, uh, is with his, 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 his light, her light. Sorry, uh, I don't want to talk about. Uh, cord on the on the flashlight and ring or blah blah. But uh, watching her uh, behavior uh, teach us a good lesson about how our body works. Yeah,
3: and you know it's interesting that we'll go back to my my time with Colonel Applegate. He would call that a convulsive grip. <laughs>
2: you,
3: you know he would say that under the stress of the moment, her brain didn't want it. It, it didn't even want to think about getting rid of that flashlight. But it wanted both hands on the gun, so she just went into a convulsive grip holding onto that gun with the flashlight in the way, and she still hit her target and hit it well. So again, for all our human limitations, with the amount of quality training she had been given, probably at the academy level and in service level, that training saved her life.
0: Listen, we're we've gone over our three hours that I, I asked you guys to be here. So thank you all for being troopers. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Before we before we kick off here, I mean, I want to give each of you a, a chance to to speak to anything that maybe you want to to pass along, kind of last words of wisdom, um, but also the chance to to let people know where they can find you and and what you got going on right now. So uh, Todd, why don't why don't you start us off, man? Where, uh, is there any last things that you want to share, and where can people get a hold of you? Uh.
1: So train, train often, hit the range, uh, train your own shooting skills, uh, get out there so your skills are to the level where you can demonstrate what you want your students to to perform on the range. Uh, Get out there to additional instructor training, get out there to additional shooter training. Just continuously work on your skills. Uh, They're perishable, so uh, time to hit the range. Uh, If you want to get in touch with me, Combative Firearms Training, phone number's up there, uh, 541-598-8372. Or you can call my cell number, which is 940-445-1110. You can email me at todd at combativefirearms.com.
0: Awesome. Uh, Paulo, Alexandra, where? Uh, what? any last words of, of wisdom from you two? or You guys individually, because uh, I know you, uh, <laughs> you both probably have something you want to share, so go ahead
2: um I, I i think i've been elected to speak for both of us right. uh thanks so much for watching and we just are going to piggyback on what todd said it's it's incumbent upon us as trainers to keep developing our skills um don't just look in the realm of firearms though I, to, to become a better instructor you need to go out and um, experience instructors from other other disciplines and do your research look at look things up online um, you find people to train with, to challenge you and that push you out of your center of comfort so you can become better at what you do. Um, we're working on just a holistic style of training and training other law enforcement officers, other instructors and civilians. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at uh, Paolo, P-A-O-L-O, at TedPolesTactics.com. And we're going to list the email addresses with Adam later. Um, or me at Phoenix at dot and thanks so much for listening today.
0: Awesome Joe what's uh, what's the last little bit you want to leave with people listening to this right now?
3: Well I, I want to remind everybody watching that we're all human beings we all have quote unquote human factors and that we have to take those into consideration all the time. Um, and, and And with that said, I'd like to remind everybody, That if we went back 50, 75, 100 years in law enforcement anywhere on the planet, there was very little to no training going on at all. And yet the men and women that do this job every day, even if we gave them no training, would go out and do it because they love their fellow man. And we should love our students enough that we find we, we seek out through good research and development the best training we can give them to let them know that we love them for loving the people they protect.
0: Awesome. Hey, well, before we sign off here, just uh, real quickly for everybody who's on the call, if you guys want to hang around a second after we go, uh, we shut the live stream off just so we can do a quick AAR. Um, Everybody here who's watching this, thank you so much for for joining us for another roundtable. It was my honor to bring this to you, and I'm glad that you got some actionable, useful information out of it. As always, you can join us. Live the last Thursday of every month at 6 p.m. Central Time. The next roundtable is going to be on active threat response. So that's going to take place in April. I believe it's April 30th. So make sure to join us. Visit thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT to get more information on that. And you'll be able to access this video on YouTube as a replay or on the uh, website. And you can also get the audio only version that we'll release on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us on the instructors roundtable and we'll see you next time. All right, that wraps up this IRT on firearms training. To get the entire video, to watch it in full, you can go to the breakdown.ca forward slash IRT. There's also links to the next upcoming IRTs and a calendar link to make sure that you don't miss out. So check that out. And also, if you haven't already, consider subscribing to the podcast. If you find this information and useful to you, So thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time on The Tactical Breakdown.
4: Stay safe.